Strangers, welcome to this strange life. Uh, I, in fact, I've just got this little. I only brought three mics and three headphones tonight, so I fucked up. But so I've got this little one that I use, <laughs> so I can barely hear myself. But uh, it's going to be all cool. So I'm Mickey, the conduit between the motherfucking freaks and geeks, and uh, we're surrounded by writers tonight. What's going on, James? How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Yeah, you look. Uh very relaxed there without your cans, with your one single earpiece, your earbud. Thank you very much. Um, I feel like a pro. You don't look like one. <laughs> My, yep, I'm, I'm James. We're joined by Tom and Laura. Do you want to introduce yourselves or should... Yes, so I'm Laura and um, I'm a French journalist and I live in Bangkok for five years and uh, I work on a very various issues uh, in the region for different media. Cool. And next to you is a handsome young man who goes by the name of Tom. Hi, I'm Tom, and uh, I'm a completely crazy writer. <laughs> I've, I've been in Asia for more than 20 years. 20 I've, years? Holy yes. Shit. I've so written, you've outdone James then, so you're 18, you're 20. Yeah, by two years. We're about the same. Uh, same, same time in Bangkok, but I, I was in India before that. So, Yeah, 2001 I arrived, and I think you were... So did I. Yeah, yeah, after... So post uh, post nine eleven. Yeah, literally a week after nine um, eleven. I was here in September sometime. Yeah, interesting. So that so right, I, I heard something for the first time tonight that there was some CIA bullshit going on here after the uh, after nine eleven. This is true, right? There's, we're not. We're, and for the listeners, we're not. We haven't got our tinfoil hats on. This is really like you could look this up. Go to Wikipedia. It's all there. Two thousand six, <laughs> right, Tom? No, so that was into waterboarded in Thailand by the CIA, right? That's apparently correct. Yeah, in two thousand two, in the wake of nine eleven, um, the CIA set up a bunch of black sites around the world, including allegedly here in Thailand, and they kidnapped or renditioned um, high value suspects um, from Afghanistan and other war theaters, and brought them here and to other black sites in Poland and other countries. And uh, used enhanced interrogation techniques, which have since been enhanced, called like torture, <laughs> uh, in order to extract um, confessions out of these people that were of very, very dubious value. And my most recent book, The Monsoon Ghost Image, which is the third part in a series of detective novels, um, is about this. It's it's the story of a photographer who... Um, who is present at these sessions in Thailand and who wow. takes photographs um, contracted by the CIA. And then the photos he takes, the monsoon ghost image, becomes incredibly valuable and is hunted by various parties who want to get their fingers on for various reasons, political, financial, etc. Um, and my detective, Maya, gets caught up in that uh, in Bangkok and some of it is set in southern Thailand. And, uh, yeah, he becomes, as soon as he puts his uh, hands on the image, he becomes the hunted rather than the hunter. Mm. It's a man hunt. I've read the book. It's an awesome 
uh, premise for a novel, but also it's a really good kind of chase novel, manhunt novel. You're in southern um, islands there around the uh, Koh Samui um, area, and there were nice. some islands which were... Um, now, when I read it, I, I thought it was complete fantasy, but there was these... Um, Islands which are populated with these wild animals, where you which, which you'd normally expect to be found on a safari somewhere in Africa. So there's like zebras and, and giraffes and uh, wild animals running around this island. And I thought it was complete fantasy, but there is an element of truth in that. I think, Tom. Yeah, that's way. correct. There's there's no islands in Thailand with uh, wild African animals on them, but uh, there is an island in the Philippines that is chock a block full of African animals. During the reign of uh, President Marcos. Um, he he had this idea of bringing animals from Kenya, so he flew a bunch of large mammals, including giraffes and zebras, from Kenya onto a small island in the Philippines where they stayed and were studied by by scientists. And some people say he did this in order for his son to be able to go hunting. Um, but these animals are still there today. Some of the species um, perished, but some of them survived. The, the giraffes and the zebras are still there. Some of them did very well because they didn't have any natural predators anymore. Yeah. And uh, today it's possible to to visit this site uh, on a day trip. Um, you're not allowed to sleep there. So um, that served as, as, as an idea. I, I, I trans transferred this island to Thailand. It doesn't really exist here, but it does exist. We all know that when you uh, transfer non-native animals to islands, it always works out uh, very well. <laughs> well. At least if they're on an island, they can be kind of contained, can't they? Yeah, That's the thing. yeah. I'm not going to spill over. Wasn't there something with rabbits in Australia or something like that? Yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the whole rabbit and Mixed the whole rabbit thing. Yeah. yeah, rabbit-proof fence. That was, uh, yeah. That was in, a good in Japan, too, they have a rabbit island where it's completely overpopulated by rabbits. Because they tend to breed quite, uh, yeah. quite well, and don't they? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the rabbit island in Japan is just everywhere. Hence the know? term, fucking like a rabbit, right? There was <laughs> <laughs> Koh Samui, there, there is an island off uh, on that archipelago there that apparently, I don't know if there's any truth in this as well, but um, anyone that's ever taken a dog to this island... Um, the dog, um, they, 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 they go crazy. They, they, they bark and they go mad and they eventually die. There's this really? <laughs> it's, it's just a strangest story. A when I, when I was living on Koh Samui, someone told it to me. Um, it was probably in a bar, I must admit. But then someone else told me the story and then a lo- local person told me the story about the, mm. the like dog ghost island or something like that. Oh, Did you go? So I'd never been, no. no I didn't Did you go. write about it? Um, I think I used it for something, yeah. I would have used Damn. it for a story. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, speaking about uh, weird islands off, off the uh, oh, yeah. coast of Thailand, Andaman Islands, I, I didn't realise how close that was to, like, Phuket, the Andaman Islands. It's like only, I'm sure it's like within hundreds it's of... Closer to Thailand and India? Or, Correct. Yeah, yeah. Man. So, <laughs> we all know the recent stories about the, uh, the religious guy. The missionary. That, the missionary, yeah, I always forget that word. The missionary who went there with his Bible and he ended up <laughs> meeting his fate there. But you... You, you've been there, Tom, right? Uh, yeah, I was in the Andaman Islands twice in 97 and 2000. And uh, yeah, when I, when I read this story that went around the world a month or two ago mm. about the young American missionary who, backed by his church, we, we, should, uh, we should say, went there and was discouraged several times by these people and uh, wanted to bring Jesus to them anyway, and so they killed him. Um, 
On the second it, attempt, though, the first time, the if I, if I, the report I heard is correct, the first time the spear hit the Bible in his breast pocket. Oh, I didn't hear that. Did you hear that? Mm, that sounds like the thirty-nine steps actually. And then he went back. <laughs> <laughs> he went back to the boat and he put it in his diary. He's writing a journal and he's like, oh, "They tried to get me once, and I wouldn't that." have been a sign you know if you was a man of faith that they had attacked you with a spear and it you know you'd been protected by you know the embodiment mm. of your faith um and then then he went back and well, he wasn't idea. so lucky that's right and since then uh, various people have been trying to extract him from there but the indian government has now decided that his body should stay there so in in general terms what 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 happened there is on the andaman islands which is an archipelago off the coast of Burma, but belongs politically to the state of India. There um, were a bunch of um, indigenous minorities who actually probably walked from Africa 50,000 years ago when there was a land bridge between Africa and that part of Asia, which is why they look like African people. Some of them, um, the Sentinelese who killed the, uh, the missionary, they're very tall. They live uh, on the North Sentinel Island, which is completely surrounded by coral, so it's actually very, very difficult to get there. But there's um, three other remaining tribes, the Andamanese, the Jarawa, the Ongi, and there used to be a couple more. Basically, when the British first turned up in the Andaman Islands hundreds of years ago during the colonial occupation of India, they um, killed most of these people, either through direct confrontation or through passing syphilis to them and then the British proceeded to build a gigantic jail on these islands where they put um, political troublemakers from India um, it was called uh, the I can't remember now, it was called the Black Hole or something, nothing to do with Calcutta but almost nobody who went there survived and you couldn't get away either because if you ran away and jumped into the sea it was infested with sharks so everybody got eaten so it was a a place where people went to do hard time. And actually, the, the prison is modeled on Pentonville Prison in London. It's got the same architectural layout. It looks the same. It's just a tropical version of that. It's still there, the ruins of it. And um, I guess prisoners would have been there right until independence uh, after World War II. But in any case, by that time, um, the number of these indigenous groups had vastly reduced because they were they all got sick from various diseases that the white man brought to them and then when india took over they um they decided to rule the andaman islands directly from delhi rather than giving them a state status and um they sort of tried to assimilate these people but the problem is all these groups are hunter gatherers which means they don't engage in architect in in agriculture they they just live of whatever they can find in the forest and the sea and those kind of people, they, they try to give them jobs. They try to put them into coconut plantations. They say, Here, go to work. We'll pay you some money. Mm. These people, they turned up for three days and then they went, why am I coming to work? I don't need money. I don't yeah. need clothes. I don't need any of this stuff you're giving me. So that didn't work. And, and so um, at the same time, the Indian government pushed loads of settlers to these islands, basically people who'd, who had some misfortune on the mainland, mostly from Tamil or Bengal, who'd been victims of floods or natural disasters, they were shipped out there on a one-way ticket, were given a plot of land, just like in the US in the 18th century or whatever. And they were like pioneer settlers. They were giving a piece of land and said, stay here and build a life. And 
of course, the more of these people turned up in the Andaman Islands, the less space there was for the indigenous mm. people. And soon their forest was disappearing and was being chopped down. So now they, they live in... in uh, the Andamanese, there's only 40 of them left, so they're basically finished. The Jarawa live on the main island and have been victims of uh, human safaris where they're made to dance and some of them have caught measles and died and a few of them are HIV positive. The Indian government blames Burmese fishermen for this. The Ongi, these are the ones that I met, they are um, very, very small. They're like one meter 30 or something and uh, there's about a hundred of the Ongi left. They live on two different reservations and then the fourth group is the Sentinelese who who are the most defensive. So as soon as somebody comes close to them, they start shooting with bows and arrows and try and kill whatever comes close to their island. But, well, I mean, why wouldn't you be that defensive after all this shit that mod... I mean, how arrogant of, of modern man to to go there and, and try and put people to work for a, for shitty wages and stuff when... I mean, these, these guys survive off the land. It's just... I don't know. It just seems so... Yeah, but when you build a nation, you cannot make exception, you know? It's Very like uh, India was in a... In the, after independence was in the nation-building phase and yeah. it's everybody has to be in. And uh, you cannot tell uh, one population uh, we let you and one other has to be forcibly into the mm. nation. But uh, as, as Tom said, I mean, most of Indian people... Uh, <coughs> really had a um, problem because they were mostly forgotten by the liberalization and modernization of the country, but uh, some of them adapt more or less better because they had more, I don't know, so skills, tools, mm. but um, people who live off the forest had, had no chance in the new nation, so they... But Tom is advocating for these people to be left alone, but it's almost too late. They should be left alone from the beginning. Yeah. But that was politically uh, complicated to give some exception to some people and mm. not to other. No, they they did have a special position in the sense that they put them on, they left them on their islands. But of course, but now like they everywhere, the island to f- visitors. Like everywhere in the world, indigenous people are being forcefully assimilated because we've decided that there's no space for them and that we don't value the way they live and and their natural habitat is disappearing through logging or through other types of exploitation. And that's the same in the Andaman Islands. The the real shame in the Andamans is that um, there are 500 islands there and most of them are unoccupied and, and it's it's really not necessary to to go there. There's no natural resources except some trees. There's nothing there that we really, really need. So with these people, unlike, for example, people in Papua New Guinea or in the Amazon where there's enormous pressure from loggers or whatever, that isn't the case there. And as Law said, the terrible thing is that this year, sorry, last year in 2018, the Indian government loosened the restrictions of visiting the Andaman Islands and, and now it's possible for tourists to go to all these islands where these indigenous groups live. And so I think that the gentleman, the the, um, the missionary, was only the first of many, that there will be more total idiots who will go there just because they can and because the police won't stop them once this law changes. Mm. And, and just either looking for an adventure holiday or maybe also bringing Jesus again or something. Dark tourism as well. And yeah, yeah. Safari, yeah. I mean, that term itself is just so fucked up. It's just... 
So my prediction, sadly, is that this gentleman who went there a couple of months ago and got killed will not be the last one. There will be more of these people. Mm. Well, that'd be a warning. I mean, Jesus. Well, there's a long line of like explorers that have, uh, that have uh, attempted to uh, to to um, explore the island, right? And, uh, and, yeah, Marco and, Polo was one of the it, first ones, and it hasn't. Oh, really? Ended mm. well. But I think you're right. I think there will be, you know, if it, if it's not missionaries, then it will be like this, uh, you know, this dark tourism uh, kind of movement that seems to be popular around the world at the moment, where people, you know, want to go to like war zones and they want to go to, um, uh, you know, conflict tourism is another word for it, you know. Mm. Yeah, uh, but or natural disasters and yeah, <laughs> or a bunch of documentary makers or something wanting to get on the <laughs> island and. Uh, but obviously, obviously, I had to ask myself that question too because I've been there, right? And it, this was not—I didn't go there as a journalist. I went there as a researcher. At the time, I was a researcher for the British Library, recording indigenous music in Asia. So I was on a small grant grant from the British Library, traveling around Asia, trying to record and document uh, a generation of indigenous musician that was going out with the times. Their children weren't learning those instruments, so they were going to be the last ones who who could play whatever they were playing. And in the course of that, I I um, recorded a bunch of people in the Andaman Islands, including, for example, uh, Bengali uh, Baal musicians who are these nomadic people from Bengal that have a very particular way of singing. So, you know, when I was there, I thought, of course, if I, if I can document the singing and the music of these people, these people that have no contact with anybody really, naively when I was young I thought no that that would be a good thing and then I was on the island of Little Andaman which is in the south of this archipelago and through sheer coincidence I I met some of them uh, the Indian government at that time and this was in 2000 they were transporting two couples from their island of the Ongi people the, the people mm. that are quite very small they were transporting them from their what they called a reservation to Port Blair, the main town in the Andaman Islands, because the Indian government had figured out that there was about a hundred Ongi left, and those Ongi who were at the right appropriate age were no longer having children. So they were trying to figure out why these people, although they were in relationships, they were having sex, but they weren't producing any kids, and whether, whether what might what might have been the reason for that. And for this reason, they took them out of the reservation and transported them to Port Blair. And by coincidence, I met them on the way. And it was a really, really interesting experience because the Indian community in, in Little Andaman, they were scared of these people. They And at that time also, there wasn't very many white people there. So I, was, I remember walking down with one of the Ongi gentlemen down the main street in, in, I can't remember the name of the town, in Little Andaman, and I went into a chai shop, a tea shop, and I ordered two tea. And the, the owner of the tea shop told me, you have to drink that outside. This guy cannot drink a cup of tea in here. So I had to go with him outside and stand in the street. And everybody was staring as, at us as people in India are prone to do. They like staring. And <coughs> so there was this real sense of alienness and discrimination. And segregation. And total segregation, yeah. yes. And then the next morning, these people were shipped off to to the hospital, that's when I lost them on the way and, and they were really scared, they didn't really know what was happening to them, they didn't know why they were going to hospital, what kind of tests they so since then they have had some children but in a few years ago, seven of these of the Ongi men were walking along the beach and they picked up a container that had washed up, probably from Burma, 
and uh, they opened the container, there was a liquid inside, they drank the liquid, and they all died, seven of them. So, grown men. So, that was an enormous loss to the community. So, this, so this is a, a, a good example of how fragile their existence is, because they don't, they don't know shit about anything up beyond their own culture mm. and beyond their way of life. And as long as they're in the jungle, on the sea, that way of life works perfectly well, doesn't hurt the natural environment because they only take as much as they need yeah, and doesn't hurt anybody else. But once they are in any way touch the modern world, the modern age, then, you know, they yeah, die. Yeah, just through disease and or just... Yeah, yeah, and I think we should ask ourselves uh, if and why every corner of the world should be open, you know, yeah. because uh, why would you let hundreds of thousands of people uh, go there? Because I... I, I heard about a, a theory also that uh, in uh, in this country in Asia we we which saw an enormous economic growth in the last thirty years. So you mm. have the a middle class in the cities now, which is uh, completely disconnected from his own roots and culture, and uh, they do also they strip. Um, to uh, to connect again, so it's the middle class of a country who got the benefit of the twenty last uh, years of economic growth. They can use the money to go on holidays, and uh, so they go there to look at a past uh, they forgotten about, but that they romanticize. Uh, they said, "Okay, that's uh, that's the." Um, that's our culture, but it's not. And uh, they are only willing to pay for it an insane amount of money for 10 days just to see it. Mm. And it's this consumption of a past, uh, but it's with humans. So as you said before, the human safari thing is, is genuinely bizarre. And mm. I was as a, at a conference last week about uh, Thailand, and apparently you have uh, this... Um, uh, this training uh, this week that um, middle class uh, Thai guy can do of boxing, but like in Isan, uh, so you go to Isan, you have a boxing training, and at the mm-hmm. same time you are walking the land with your hands, like the like your grandfather did before mm-hmm. to remember mm-hmm. what it is, you know. So it's this um, very superficial short term coming back to. Um, to what we were, or what the nation, yeah, but trying to get you back in touch with your roots. Yeah, but yeah. you just look at it in a very romanticized way, without um, wondering why this way of life has disappeared. You know, why are we consuming a way of life for two weeks instead of protecting this way of life? So it's um, it's interesting that it has become this this piece of museum and in and in India we we went to some museum like this like they do this tribal museum you know so you enter and you have this we created houses with um, with mannequin and um, <laughs> it, it's really mannequin with the clothes couple without a gla- uh, behind a glass window and and these people still exist you know yeah. and it's very very bizarre how we yeah. we see them and we should ask ourselves this question uh, where do we put ourselves here if we could spin it around and if we could have a museum in the city um, showing um, guys the in suits way yeah, of life, yeah. and we can take the poor the farmers and they can, they can for a week you know, um, Fuck yeah, they, they could go and cool. live the life of a um, rich executive, right? And drive around in sports cars. Well, I actually, I yeah. have an exchange program. Yeah, like an that? exchange program, dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. there is this place in in Siem Reap in Cambodia called uh, 
I think it's called the Cambodian village or something, and they do exactly the same thing there. They they have these life size uh, scenes of of, yeah. of farmers and, and and it's happening right outside and country people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But one one of the displays, I think they've taken it away now. But years ago, they had this one display, which was of a, a life size real UN worker, <laughs> right? That's from cool. from the Untak days. Yes, but That's in in problem. in the tableau with the UN worker was a sex worker. Oh right, wow, so that was appropriate. Wow, wow. Yeah, so that was Cambodia since, in yeah, since being proved appropriate in 1990 or whatever. You know, that's how they. It was a UN worker or a UN Straight soldier forward, yeah. together with a Cambodian sex worker, and that's how yeah. they saw. That's how, whoever built that Cambodian village. That's how they saw their country he right. was, he at was that time. But in that's, the your most that's your obsession. Also, to look at what white people do in Asia because it's us. What are we doing here? Yeah. How how can we be less the less offensive, you know. What can you bring here? Well, Why are you here? Yeah, and man. so Tom is exploring this with That's books. Beautiful. But I'm, that. Yeah, but I'm not... I mean, I've, I've spent 20 years writing about white people in Asia. And I'm in good company, you know. That's what Joseph Conrad used to do, is what lots of writers have done. But I'm, I'm not bothered about whether they behave or not. I mean, the worse they behave, the better my stories are, mm. I suppose, you know. That doesn't take away from the fact that it's totally tragic when you see some white sack behaving like a pig in thailand or somewhere else you know but at the end of the day for a writer it's a story and and mm. and you know it's it's also a historical aberration i think our time in in this part of the world is truly ending yeah. the vietnam war was a historical aberration mm. they should never have been there in the first place this is china's backyard whether we like it or not and i think now that um these countries are for better or for worse, emancipating themselves, there'll be much less of a role for us here. Also because the West is becoming more isolationist and is actually pulling out of much of Asia. You know, America is is only looking at itself at the moment. I believe uh, Singapore probably doesn't even have an American ambassador or didn't till recently. And and so the, you know, the geopolitical action of the americans and, and the europeans here is receding very fast and the chinese are stepping into this vacuum and they're they're taking all of this over same as africa as well yeah. same as in africa same as in many places because we in the west are struggling so much with ourselves at the moment in europe in, in england with brexit in 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 europe with the eu and the far right in america with with trump and in all france. that yeah. in france with the gilet jaune so, so you know, we've got our hands full back home, and and so we're losing the focus either to our old colonies or to our old spheres of influence, and and for sure this will change Asia in many many ways in the next twenty years, and and as I said, I, I believe our time en masse is finished. Of course, at the court of Ayutthaya in the seventeenth century, there was also foreigners. There was Portuguese there and all sorts of people, adventurers, traders, business people, crazy people. And so I believe a few of us will always be here. <coughs> but um, this vast amount of people, for example, who've been living in Thailand, uh, what what the Thais call Farang, since, since the Vietnam War, I think their days are, are truly numbered. Especially when you look at the currency situation as well. I mean, when mm. we were first over here, like almost 20 years ago, like 70-odd baht to the pound or something. That was in the wake of the and crash, now, right? Yeah, just up, well, it, was, it went up to like 90, I think, just after the crash. But it, it leveled at about 70-something in 2001. And a lot of guys here 
um, older guys with a full working life behind them have decided to retire and live there. And yeah, they can't do that anymore. Right, but it? let's not forget that life in the West has also become much more expensive. And I mean, yeah, if you retired today in the UK, I mean, the UK You've prices, everything is yeah. crazily expensive there. The rent is crazy. If you don't own your own house, you're completely chiseled. You're going to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of on rent. So yes, the prices in Asia have certainly risen everywhere from India to Thailand to Cambodia to wherever. But uh, it, it, it ain't getting cheaper back home either. So mm -hmm. I think that that incentive for people is not going to go away. What will go away is this kind of strange diplomatic immunity we've enjoyed here and this kind of um, almost kind of embarrassing respect that white people sometimes get from yeah. from local people all across Asia. And that is disappearing because... Those people are not so impressed by us anymore. They see that we... They've seen too much, Tom. Yeah. They've seen too much. They, they've become... They've let become, them peek behind the curtain. Yeah, I mean... I mean, yeah, I mean... But it's also got to do with the fact that there's a middle class here now as well. And there's people... You know, there's plenty of people here who make far more money every day doing regular mm -hmm. jobs. Local people in Thailand, for example, than uh, us four sitting around the table here, you know? So... There is a middle class here now, and mm. if you're, I don't know, a pilot for Air Asia or a, a surgeon at a local hospital, then you're going to be on a decent wage, and you're going to have disposable income and the right level of education, and and so. Um, and a lot of the middle class um, kids, you know, students are going over to the west uh, to study as yes. well. I mean, if they go to Leeds or London, they see on a Friday night in a local high street all this kind <laughs> yeah. of binge drinking culture mm. and all this, you know, really uncouth behavior. Then they come back to Thailand and they have a different image of the West than their um, perhaps grandmother or mother did, you know. Who thinks um, that the money <laughs> grow, grew on trees back home well, they, where they we come from? They saw the, yeah. the photos of the king in Switzerland and this kind of stuff, you know, and they, they had a, <laughs> this really nice image of the West, which, you know, if you go over and see it, it's... It, it's come on, Switzerland is the nicest country Sw in the world. Switzerland, it looks beautiful. Yeah. It looks beautiful. Um, mm. yeah. St. Moritz is nice. Just don't talk to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so you you grew up in uh, Germany, Tom? Yeah, I, I'm I'm German. I was born in Germany. In Sorry, the, you are German. In the yeah. southwest, uh, I grew up in an area where there was a very very significant uh, presence of American troops uh, since World War Two. So, right near the small town where I grew up, there was about ninety thousand American soldiers stationed. Uh, one of my very first girlfriends was called Monica, and she was from Kentucky. And her her <laughs> papa had been in Vietnam and he'd left something in Vietnam. He didn't bring it all back. And I remember uh, she she actually her she and her family didn't live on base. Um she she lived in my village where I grew up in a small village and so I met this girl when I was fifteen, sixteen and I used to sometimes go around uh, to their house and her papa would always sit in front of the T V with her, I mean, it was so classic yeah, that every trope, every cliche was pulled in this. You know, he, he would sit in front of the TV with a can of Coke in his hand, reading either American war novels or, or westerns by Louis Lamour, and staring at the television, watching um, war movies round the clock. And uh, he never ever said very much. I mean, he was. He, what we know today is he, this guy had PTSD, you know. Mm, Post-traumatic stress. But at that time, Shit, man, this yeah. would have been uh, when was this? Uh, in, in the late seventies, early eighties. So this wasn't diagnosed, and he was just left to his own devices. He was 
probably 45 years old, just hanging in there. Mm. And, and one day, I wasn't there, but I was told, one, one day he got up, he dropped his can of Coke and his book on the floor, he grabbed the television, and he chucked it through his window. But he didn't open the window first. <laughs> so, um, so at that point, um, he was taken back to the US. Uh, they realized there was something really badly wrong, and, and Monica went with him, of course, and I never ever heard of them again. Oh, shit. So life on the, in, in the... Uh on the base it's okay uh, I got the, over it you know there, there was <laughs> I hope so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got your girlfriend sitting next to you now was it <laughs> Monica Monica oh Monica oh Monica it's Life okay on the we base. all have a past <laughs> yeah the we first do. love several the first flame birds the, the <laughs> no but tell <laughs> the story in the fun fair the fun fair oh yeah 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 okay so because of this American connection so this was this was also the reason why I learned to speak English at at quite a young age i was pretty fluent when i was 14 and i had these two mates who were soldiers and they were not much older than me they were like 17 18 one of them was i can't remember his name but he's a latino guy from la who's really really into slayer so um nice. i i had lots of heavy metal discussions with him and then the other guy he was called drew i think and he was he was a white guy and he, he'd lived in in the back of a car in la for a couple of years and and thought to himself that he didn't really have any perspective in life so that's why he joined up but uh, politically he wasn't really on the level so every time we had an anti-american demonstration in our hometown usually against pershing 2 or one of these rocket systems they were putting into europe um, he would come with me to the demonstrations in uniform and of course then they'd catch him and put him in the slammer and then he had <laughs> and he had this endless guard duty at night and he would be sitting in this little shitty guard house doing nothing for weeks and weeks during the night on end. And there was a phone in this guardhouse. So he thought, oh, I'm so bloody bored. You have to remember, this is before smartphones and internet and all that, you know. And he was so bloody bored that he, he thought, oh, maybe I'll, I'll try and ring my cousin in Ohio. So he did on the army phone, and it worked. So he rang absolutely everybody he knew in the U.S. And for days and days and days and days on end, he would speak to his family and friends until they caught him. And then he was uh, arrested properly and court-martialed and sent back to the States. But with him, so I never heard from him again, but with him, I went to these, they, they used to organize these uh, American-German friendship festivals where um, young, tough, village, provincial Germans would go and meet young, tough GIs from the U.S. with probably just as little education as the Germans. Yep. And they would do kind of combat drinking, you know. They'd yeah. get down arm, and drink and drink and, and everything. So they, they had a few kind of really funny setups there. One, I remember, in the, they had this giant beer tent. And in, in the middle of this beer tent was a big cage. Okay, so you could give the military police who was present, you could give them 10 bucks and point to someone. And then they'd arrest that person with their beer in their hand and put them in that cage. And then you could pay the military police more money to keep them in that cage. So once these guys ran out of beer, they wanted to get out of the cage. Mm. And so you kept them so long in there that they went into a complete rage because all their friends outside were getting pissed and they were in there slowly drying out. Good method of crowd just, control as yeah. well. Someone's <laughs> yeah. really yeah. pissing yeah. you off, you know, yeah. two bucks each, get them in the cage. No, no, no. That, I think this was really an American idea because all those <laughs> those kind of attractions they had Enhanced they were, were very American. Another thing was, um, I don't know what this is called in English. When when you at fun fairs you have this 
this knob in the ground that you hit very hard with a, a hammer. Large hammer, like a mallet. Yeah, what's it called in English? I don't know what the name, but we can all um, imagine this thing, right? It's, it's like got, a hammer it, and bell, isn't it? Yeah, the bell, then bell. the thing goes up and the bell yeah. rings if yeah. you hit it hard enough. Yeah. Okay, so they had one of those and it was, in a, it was set in a, in a kind of concrete thing. So that the, the, thing on the, the, the thing that you hit on a spring is like a metal kind of disc and if you hit it hard enough, the, the, the bell will go up and ring and there was two guys uh, i mean i was i was 15 16 years old at this time and you know quite impressionable and i hadn't seen too many horrible things <laughs> in life but i was uh, certainly hungry for them and uh, so i was watching these two guys and w- one was a african american huge guy with massive muscles and the other guy was a little white guy also really really broad shouldered and massive massive arms i mean he had arms like i have legs and they were young in their 20s and they were so piss drunk they could barely stand up they had to lean on that hammer before they swung it so the african-american guy swung the hammer first and sure enough he hit that thing and the bell went up and ding he reached the top you know and then the other guy was leaning on the hammer and he just he should never have done it he couldn't stand he couldn't see he, he was like on the on the point of being comatose mm. but because his mate had just rang the bell he had to ring the bell as well go, go, go suspense. so uh so yeah he swung he swung the hammer and he fucking missed and he hit the concrete and when he hit the concrete his lower arm snapped in half because he'd put oh. so much weight in it so it was an open break if you know what i mean yeah which uh, you don't see very often, especially not when like you're 15. And when it comes, yes, when the bone comes out. Yes, oh. and, uh, and he didn't realize what had happened because he was too drunk. So that was America's first experience. So that, yeah, yeah, that was my first experience of America, basically. You know? I mean, it wasn't in America, but it was on the base, and, and yeah. those bases were like the Midwest. You, know? it was, you were in America. Mm. And uh, yeah, and the ambulance came and took that poor guy away, you know. And um, I'm sure he was out of action for quite a while, man. Oh man, that's I unbelievable. The arm actually did it actually bend the wrong way, and the bone came out. Oh. Uh, I can't remember exactly. I watching that Look, stuff on YouTube where they kick something. Thirty-five years ago. Like, oh, I tell you another thing. I, around the same time, I, I went first time I went to the UK by myself. I was in in London. I was staying in South London in. Teddington with a friend of mine and and we went to a fun fair and and in those days in England this must have been yeah, early 80s or something there, there was all these fights between mods and rockers and skinheads yeah, 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 these yeah. sort of gang fights and uh, and and there was a, a big fight at this fun fair near Teddington in Kingston or something and um, these bloody skinheads cut off the ear of a of a mod and this is another one of these things I just remember really vividly from being young. I was sitting that, there yeah, playing really one of these Space Invader tables. Do you remember the tables that where you yeah. used to sit down? Yeah. Table yeah. Arcade. yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. I looked up and I saw these guys fighting with each other and the knives came out and then they chopped this fucking guy's ear off and he was still hanging from the head but he was pissing blood and it was oh. like in a it was like in a being in a Tarantino movie before Tarantino movies even existed. Mm. So uh yeah, those are those are my uh, memories of my uh so, so as a student in Oxford, well, what was the? Uh, you were studying English. Uh, yeah, I studied English in Oxford at the Polytechnic between 1986 and 1989. English and publishing, actually. And uh, that was also a good time. But 
you know, I stayed there for four years, and then once I had my degree, I I left and went squatting in London. So you were in London. Uh, some really fucking cool music was going on, man. When you were when you were in London, from like punk and uh, you know mod music, and I mean you were around through to London the indie in, scene as well. Yeah, through to the indie scene, maybe a little bit of acid house. Just co- well, eighty six. Yeah, maybe I was, not. Maybe I was, not. I was pre acid house. Pre acid house. So yeah. yeah, I mean, in fact, when I finished college. I got my degree. I didn't want to work in publishing, and I certainly didn't want to become a teacher or anything like that. I didn't. So I, I joined a rock and roll band and uh, went to London, lived in squats, had this really, really terrible job putting up back lines for big bands in Wembley Stadium mm. and uh, the Docklands and all these big venues. Mm. Like I worked for people like Pink Floyd and Diana Ross and oh, Cliff Richard and uh, Flock of Seagulls. And oh. Yeah, yeah so really, <laughs> really, I saw nice. some really dreadful, dreadful stuff. Oh, the Beach Boys. Um, yeah, anyway. Beach Boys are cool. And, and the company I worked for was dreadful because they, they, they paid its employees. You could choose whether you wanted to be paid with pound sterling or cocaine. So a lot of... Awesome. <laughs> this is the 80s, right? <laughs> London, mate. So, so a lot of people at that company... I won't say who it was. They completely dead. <laughs> possibly, yeah. They really fucked themselves up because we used to have to work these long, long shifts to put up the backline in Wembley or whatever. So you'd work like twenty hours in a row. So you'd be, they would be well, well tempted because it was always there. And then they'd get into debt and would have to work like round the clock. It was an absolute Enslaved. nightmare system. And yeah, of course, the coke in those days was bang on as well not like it is today yeah i didn't i didn't see anybody was doing any good but that was just how <laughs> it was you know and and you know I, I after college playing in rock and roll bands i didn't have time to go to a job or anything you know i was sitting in my bed sit playing guitar all day or just lying around doing nothing and like nice. doing nothing meant a lot to me then so um so i wasn't I wasn't going to work. So we were constantly, me and my bandmates, we were constantly, constantly looking for other ways to make money mm. short of uh, crime, you know? So um, so one of the things we did, oh, me and me and my mate Pete, who was uh, the singer in one of the bands I played in, we used to go down to Harley Street once a week. Which And Harley Street is the street in London where all the very, very expensive private clinics are. Doctors, yeah, yeah. Um, mostly the Plastic doctors. surgeons. For example, plastic surgeons, but yeah. also um, all the fertility clinics are there. So what did they have? Well, what did you have that they were interested in? Yeah, well, precisely. So we used to go down there once a week. Sperm. and Yes. And uh, for 25 quid. 25 which, quid in the 80s? That was a lot of money. What, really? Yeah, you could live for three or four cocaine. days on this. Yeah. You could live for three or four days on this. We, we used to go in there and... Uh, you deposit. Know, deposit. Uh, make, make that's deposit. right. And, and you had to be really careful that you... You didn't. You didn't. Used to pay him in cold. No, no. As well. you, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't shag anyone for a couple of days beforehand because so otherwise you. Got the you load. No, no. Because you, <laughs> yes, because your sperm count would be too low, and if the sperm yeah. count was too low, they wouldn't pay you. Nice. It was ah, it was exploitation. It was exploitation. So you had to like not That's masturbate. capitalism for you. Had to, you. you had to like not masturbate. Not for masturbate. Three days. Yes, that was tough. I bet that was tough back in your back in your early life. In my, in my early twenties, yeah. yeah. And my girlfriend was complaining too, <laughs> but of course she could see that this was also a way to make money without having to go, having to go to work. So, 
So it's kind of like a reverse, like, kind of uh, prostitution thing going on. <laughs> Instead of you sending her out as a pimp to, like, you She know, was sending you out. She was sending yeah. you out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> to deposit it. Hey, and I'll tell you, the best the best moments were sometimes, because, you know, these, these clinics in Harley Street are really posh, yeah? Yeah. And I was playing in rock and roll bands at that time, so I had dreadlocks down to my yeah, ass. Yeah, back then. And horrible earrings <laughs> and, and completely ripped clothes. And I, I looked like shit, you know. And I used to walk in there and I used to pass these seriously distressed couples in the hallway who had just come out oh, of some no. consultation yeah. because either he or her couldn't conceive and they went there to buy my sperm. <laughs> So there's, Anyone prob- there's but probably a little, a little community of uh, okay. Toms in London now. They've yeah, been we well, they're about 20 years Tom. old now. I'm, yeah. still, I'm still waiting to walk through some airport terminal somewhere in the world, <laughs> and this guy walks past me <laughs> and looks exactly like me. Yeah. But the funniest thing was, Papa? because we were, so, we were also totally out to lunch at that time. I remember, we were, in my early 20s, I was playing in rock and roll bands. I was constantly on tour with these rockabilly bands around Europe and then we'd come back to London and live in squats or really shitty shared houses and, you know, there was a fair amount of debauchery going on and and so I did manage to have the necessary discipline not to have sex for two or three days before going in there but we didn't always manage to have the necessary discipline to go in there straight. So I do remember on two or three occasions we'd end up for like a 10 o'clock morning appointment on a Saturday morning and I was still tripping my tits off on acid and we'd go in there. Does that taint the sperm? If it's got like <laughs> well, traces really? of LSD Well, the first it? challenge was just to be able to produce any sperm in that state, you yeah. know, because you'd be sitting in there, right. little waiting room, t- bathroom, toilet thing, laughing your, laughing your nuts off looking in the, in the mirror. So uh, that was a real challenge in itself. But it was indicative of my life then and pretty much of what came after and what's come since, you know. Did they have like a special uh, room? Yes, they Was did. A master... A, a, a yes, magazine? they did. Mastatorium? Yes, they did. Is that the phrase? A wankatorium. They did. There was a queue sometimes. Uh, did they have magazines in there? I mean, was of there course they did. This was before <laughs> internet, mate. Before VHS tapes. Before we, uh, probably, not, probably not before VHS tapes, but they didn't go as far as that. No, there was just men's only and whatever they were. So, so Tom, what's your advice to 25 years old people? Don't get a job. Rob a bank. Do anything, but don't get a job. But don't rob a sperm bank. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess if you rob the right one, there might be some money in it. <laughs> Well, great. I don't yeah. know enough about yeah. sperm banks. Street, street value is going to be pretty low on that. <laughs> yeah. We were speaking about this on our podcast the other day, weren't we? Like using sperm for currency. Yeah, God knows how that... How <laughs> yeah. that uh. And what about the woman? How we do it? We are eggs. just poor. Eggs. Use your eggs. So Eggs. Well, like you go to your eggs and you have... Uh, yeah, no, it doesn't oh, work like eggs. this. And, E-G-G-S. Uh, eggs. Eggs. I thought you have to go to your ex and ask him for your sperm <laughs> so you can buy your food, you no, know. That would be a nightmare. That, that, that won't work, yeah. but the egg thing would mm, definitely wouldn't work. Wouldn't advise that. Now this conversation is quickly deteriorating. <laughs> <laughs> you started. So, Law. Yes. You, uh, we don't leave you out. So you, you're, you're, you're cool. You've, uh, <laughs> you. you're a, a journalist, right? Yes, I've been trained as a journalist. And you've interviewed some like really cool people, like none other than Barry Hussein, uh, whatever he's called, Obama, <laughs> Barack no, Hussein that Obama. Was, that right? was interesting. It was. I started really. Uh, 
the classic standard old school career where you start in your local newspapers or um, yeah okay i was a a wakeless teenager in a small town mm-hmm. And my mother was like, okay, I have to do something with this child, you know. And I, I like to weed and white. That was the good thing. But otherwise, I was pretty <laughs> reckless. So my mother, on, the, on a Saturday um, morning, she went to the local newspaper with the shopping bags and uh, entered and said, can I talk to the boss? And, and said, uh, can you give a job to my daughter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> How nice of her. Thanks, <laughs> yeah. Mum. Cheers, Mum. So, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, she said, no, no, you have to give her something to do. She has too much question and stuff. And he said, okay. So I end up with my first mentor. He, he said, when she's 18, you send it to me. You send her to me. So when I was 18, I entered the local newspaper. And uh, I learned everything there. Because you, uh, I started with a 65-years-old guy who was on the verge of retirement. I was 18, and he was determined to... Tell me everything he knew before he, he left. So I learned journalist with him. And he sent me to all this challenging stuff. So like one year later, we had the NATO summit in Strasbourg, which is the city between in France, but on the German border where yeah. I come from. And um, there is a lot of European institutions. So Barack Obama came here for the NATO summit, if I'm not mistaken, in 2007 or eight, And... Um, and I was asked by the local newspaper to cover both sides. So the, um, the very official one where Barack Obama came and the whole city was locked down, which is shocking. You know, you don't do, really do this in France mm. and people were shocked. Hey, it's an American what, president. What, what it's not this? even a French one, you know. 2007. Huh? Ten, yeah, more than uh, 10 years ago. Okay, right. So they locked the whole city center and people were like, what the fuck, you know, you cannot go back to your house for three days. So that was really interesting. And how... <laughs> no, but that, that's true. They, they closed the whole city center. You just cannot enter anymore. Yeah. And um, just because some army thing is going on, you know? Mm. And so Secret it service. was really... Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. So the, the official event was uh, in, a, in a basketball stadium with all the, um, the Democrats from America abroad. So um, Democrats, Americans abroad. So it was all the Americans from this part of France, Germany, who came to support Obama. And uh, it was... Yeah, that, I would say that was my first America... Uh, experience because mm. it, uh, a meeting was t- which started with a um, gospel Jesus song by a singer right. and uh, in France Christian it's like rock. yeah yeah in France it's like <laughs> wow 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 this is a long time we separated religion and politics you know so yeah. that was interesting and uh, so you, um, we, I had this to cover the events of Democrats abroad and Obama really doing the charming thing, you know, inviting high schoolers and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I, I was from the city. I was living here. So I also did the other side. And the other side was the um, ecologist people, black blocks. So this anarchist, black anarchist from Europe and stuff. And uh, I, I end up in this demonstration, which was... I don't know, 10,000 at least people and uh, against NATO because there mm. is a whole fringe of population in Europe who think that NATO should not exist on the territory. We're, burn, we're burning shit. And uh, yeah, yeah, in <laughs> France, we love to burn things, yeah, yeah. cars. We love to burn. When we are <laughs> yeah. happy, we burn cars. When we are not happy, cool. we burn cars. So it was all burning all uh, everywhere. <laughs> <and at home. laughs> 
and a whole yeah but that was tragic in a way because uh, the anti-nato demonstration has been banned from the city center where mm. it would have been much more important and uh, left in the suburbs on the German border. So you have to see uh, the city really uh, divided between France and Germany. You have the river in the middle uh, and you have pedestrian. So when there were demonstrations, there was often Swiss, German, French people together who meet here. So you are there, but it's also the, the poorest part of the city. So more or less the authorities pushed all this demonstration on the suburbs of the city in the poorest part. And it just went um, into conflict and the mm. whole area went into flames. Wow. And it's it's thousands of people who live there and they are the poorest of the city, you know. And it was just an enormous clusterfuck. A whole hotel went into flame, <laughs> flame with a helicopter and it was just so And this was while nasty. Obama was in town? Yeah, he was in town. It was happening oh, the same day. On the morning I was doing uh, his... Uh, He's making speech uh, in the in the stadium, and in the afternoon they were really uh, the the cops were throwing rocks at all people, you know, who were demonstrating, mm -hmm. and they were pushing. Uh, you can you couldn't go back in the city for the whole day. So I was 19, and it was super interesting to look at international politics uh, like this. I, I was lucky to um, to grow up in this city, so Strasbourg is full of European yeah. institutions, so you have all these big people who come recently, and I did this European uh, journalist school that allowed me to be in all these events. So it was really interesting, but it gives you also early um, a real politic sort of thinking like that, yeah. and uh, you understand very quick that uh, the, the the real information the real truth in is not in official political events mm. you know you have to move very quickly to to street politics if you want to talk about anything yeah. relevant to most of the people so um, uh, i learned a lot about what i like to cover and what i found uh, genuinely disturbing so. so this is why you guys are perfect for each other because you you found each other, and now you're fucking doing these like hundred day uh, trips around fucking Asia, and you you just backpack to China. Uh, sorry, uh, hitchhike to China, yeah. right? Yeah, we really make a point. I mean, it, it's economics. We both choose to be freelance, so freelancers are just poor comparatively yeah. to. Um, journalist in staff so we yeah. have to self-finance our features most of them how, how did you meet sorry to interrupt but how, how, how oh, did yeah. you guys meet um i came for the first time in thailand in 2014 two months before the coup you see and uh, i yeah. came on holidays with a friend and um I was uh, I was always this freelance mentality that if you spend money you have to get the money back two weeks after <laughs> yeah. you know so every time I go somewhere I think about an article and for for a while I was already working for this uh, I started really in uh, music and tattoo uh, magazine so I did this local newspaper right. and after I specialized in music tattoo yeah and um, so we we came to Thailand and I said oh. Let's do something about Sakyan, so the sacred tattoo in the temples in Thailand. And uh, we found out that, uh, that Tom wrote one of the um, reference books about Sakyan in English. And we said, okay, let's, let's interview him. So um, we met in mm. Nana. 
<laughs> in, uh, Nana Plaza, but Italy, not literally yeah. in Nana Plaza. No, I think no, no, Nana Plaza in a little Arabia place in Nana, and yeah, that was the beginning. I mean, that was not. I think it's a huge, huge coincidence, but it was so yeah. nice of a coincidence that um, seems like you yeah, guys you want to give it a try. Yeah, yeah, it seems like you guys are made for each other. But. Yeah. So you, you spent some. Uh, I just want to get on. Uh, got loads of shit to talk about, and I know time's getting on. But uh, the Kathmandu earthquake. Can you tell us about? Uh, can you tell us yeah, about that? You yeah, got caught there in the earthquake. So Tom I decided. And, you know? Yeah, I will let him talk but uh, six months after we met i came to thailand <laughs> to settle and two months yeah. after i live in thailand we decide to go to to nepal to have a trek yeah so i will one of um, your hundred day tours right yeah i, I will <laughs> let tom talk about this because he has a long history with the country and it was mostly we got there to reconnect with people he knew there and for a tattoo convention too there was a big, big uh, tattoo convention in Kathmandu. That not not big, but in the sense of it was really uh, famous in the milieu because it was just cool, you know. It was this mm. revival of seventies uh, Kathmandu hippie right. stuff, and hippies. it w- there was a wheel where all the white people and Indian hippies were hanging on all year in Asia met in Kathmandu was a meeting point for this sort of alternative people so we wanted to go there and cover it and mm. at the same time have some time in the mountain yeah so if you want to historically it's been an alternative kind of uh, town isn't it though uh, yeah the Beatles were there Freak Street yeah. allegedly 70s. Jimi Hendrix was there I think that's a lie but city. Uh, who was it Donovan was there Mia Farrow was mm. there in the 60s so it was a hippie heaven and until 1974 hashish was legal and then the american government leaned on the nepalis so much that they made it illegal so oh, but the hippies Americans. stayed there was south of derba square in Kathmandu. there was this area called freak street That's which right, was yeah. which was full of these little old guest houses and cafes and and just crammed with stoners uh, you know with esoteric perspectives and uh, yeah we we went uh, in 2015 because I had an assignment for the Nikkei Asian Review to write a business story about the business around Everest. So we went up there, we walked for 19 days, I talked to tons of people, climbers, uh, trekkers, and just looking at the different aspects of how people were making money out of that part of the Himalayas. Then we got back to Kathmandu, and then we had another assignment for a French tattoo magazine, which was, as Law said, to cover the um, third or fourth international fifth international um, tattoo convention which took place in the oldest hotel in Kathmandu a place called the Yakin Yeti which had been opened in the 1950s by a crazy Russian guy to get with the uh, blessing of the king of Nepal so that that was the first hotel in Kathmandu and it was also the hotel from which Hillary uh, Edmund Hillary left to climb Mount Everest because it was the, the place where all the expeditions stayed in the early days. And that, that hotel is still there and they have this huge, enormous ballroom with old chandeliers on the ceiling and this sort of tacky Baroque kind of uh, mm-hmm. design. And in that, they had this three-day uh, tattoo convention with about 100 international tattooists and and, and a lot of Nepali tattooists. And there was a lot of punters there and rock bands. And, you know, like at all tattoo conventions, you 
people present their work and there's demonstrations and music and competitions and all that kind of thing. And on the second day of the tattoo convention, exactly at midday, um, Law was just about to start interviewing a, a famous French tattooist in the ballroom and I was kind of bored and I walked out and I, I, I was just walking through the, the big gates that led, the big doorway that led into the ballroom which was half separated by a pillar so it was split into two halves when you could go in and just as I was walking past the pillar the building started shaking like crazy and um, the uh, chandelier started rattling and the electricity went off and so from one second to another all that noise of the tattoo machines it just stopped and there was this moment of nothing and then a huge panic and then there was a stampede of all the five six hundred people that were in this ballroom they stampeded past me out of the hotel it was on the first floor so they had to get down the stairway as well there's no proper fire exits and no, well, and shit like there was a big that. stairway to get out, but it one guy jumped out of the window and broke his back, an English guy. He was pushed by the crowd. From the first floor. And then the rest ran out, and when everybody had gone, because I was too scared to move from that pillar, I thought, if I start running now, I'll be, I'll be tr- trampled by all these crazy people. So yeah. I waited, and then one, ev- once everybody had gone, I, I ran after them. And, uh, yeah, I've, at first I thought that, uh, you know, ne- Nepal had a horrible civil war between 1997 and 2007 where the Maoist communists were fighting the, uh, the, the, uh, the Nepali military mm-hmm. who was uh, aided by the U.S. By, by the US. Um, eventually, um, the military lost that war. Um, the communists, the Maoists mm-hmm. won. Uh, they've since formed a government. But at, at that time, um, the war had already finished. But you know, it was such a, it was just incredible. The, the first quake was 80 seconds, so the ground was just shaking like crazy. And my first thought was, well, bloody hell, they, there's some, so there's somebody set off a big bomb or there's somebody's mm-hmm. firing at the city or something. And then when I got outside, I realized, bloody hell, it's an, it's an, it's an earthquake. And then before, in front of the hotel, I, I reunited with Law. I found her or we found each other. And then she said, oh, I've lost my, I've lost, I lost my notebook running out. I lost my notebook. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but when you spend one month writing everything in yeah, one yeah, book... that's going to piss you off. Actually, I lost my notebook too, but yeah, I didn't give a shit because I knew that my business story about Everest was dead. Yeah. Nobody was going to publish that. The Nikkei wasn't going to publish it, not with the earthquake happening yeah. then. They but you had a whole new story, right? Absolutely. But so you have right. everything. You have your but contact, you have your notes, you have everything in there, and you say, okay, that's one month's work gone, you know? So and I went back in the building. Even though oh, nobody shit. wanted us to go back, the police didn't want us to go back. Nobody. Mm, and I, you have your books also. Too. I had some books in there that I that were worth some money, so I climbed back up the stairs, went into the building, went into the ballroom where everything was a complete. You know, like at any fair, there's these divider walls between the booths, and they had all collapsed, and and uh, it was amazing because the first thing I saw on the floor was her bloody notebook which was bright really? yellow, so that helped. Oh, nice. And um, as I was collecting that and trying to find my books, the building started shaking again. So again, I almost shut myself. I ran out and, uh, <laughs> and then we were all, all in the forecourt of this hotel, like 150 heavily tattooed people looking very, very strange. <laughs> half naked. <laughs> half naked and bleeding because they were being right. tattooed. And everybody was uh, knocking back whiskeys. And, and Did you have the camera? 
I was gonna, I, yeah, I, we have of course we had the camera. Yeah. I, I don't I mean, want to like. That, trip. That's they're the pictures to take. I mean, fuck right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got pictures of people looking really, really freaked out. Actually, but uh, not to trivialise it. But the last thing you want when you're getting tattooed is the like the ground to start shaking. Ah, I yeah. mean, it was a disaster because yeah. it's like bombs. A lot of half finished stuff yeah. there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's, Jesus it's bloody. It's bloody. Yeah, when it's yeah, bloody. man. That's the last so, so yeah. Then we stayed in the city another four days, and as you as you said, Mickey, we um, for me it, the the tragedy: eight thousand people died, a thousand of them wow. in the Kathmandu nine, Valley, nine thousand people. Sorry, many, oh. many, many thousands of people got uh, homeless and lost their homes, and all the roads and the tourist industry. I mean, the whole everything it was, it collapsed basically. Yeah. yeah, the historical center, the, the UNESCO economy. World Heritage Site, totally collapsed. All the the yeah, temples the and palaces and it was Shit, already man. one of the poorest countries in Asia I mean people are really struggling in, mm. in 2018 they finally hit the $1,000 income per year per person per year yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's like it, it's it's such it's so desperate and it's like it's enormously um, de- yeah distressing when something happened in, mm. a, in a country like this because you could know that in the days after that we that this will be so hard for the people and that was mm. the most uh, yeah shocking because nothing was happening and but of um, course ironically we had a lot of work you know when we could still yeah. get online somewhere and uh Via yeah. Twitter, the first day we could still get online, and via Twitter, I just got loads and loads of offices from uh, so offices. You guys were one of the first reporters on the scene. We were the only reporters we on the, the scene because the airport yeah. was closed. With some correspondent wow. who were living uh, also in, uh, so there was one journalist, Thomas Bell, who wrote this book, Katmandu, mm. British guy, who, with the reference book about it. He was there with his wife, uh, but otherwise there was nobody. Yeah, and. Um, Shit. And but but we had to work, but at the same time we had to, and I weigh my words, we had really to survive, you know, because as I said before, we are freelancers, so we have never more yeah. than one hundred euro in our pockets, and at this precise time we had exactly eight dollars because we were just get going to the ATM, so we had eight dollars in our pockets, yeah. and suddenly you have all the ATM and all the Western Union so and fucked. all the electricity that goes off, so you have no money, you have nothing. Mm. And, uh, but there no, was nothing to spend money and on. No either. clients and yeah. no embassy and nobody cares about you really, you know, when you are nobody. So it's like you so have well, to, to survive alone. But the, fr- the, the French embassy nailed their door shut, no? Yeah, the, the, I mean, it, it, it's still controversial, but the French embassy was really a small building and they felt uh, overwhelmed by the mm. situation. And more or less, uh, they said, yeah, yeah, we can open the garden, but it's only for. Uh, for French citizen and I, and I was like yeah but my my partner is German you know and it's like no it was only on French ID I mean the him. fuck you know so you <laughs> so if you're not married with a French you don't go there to to the credit the British embassy opened the, the garden to all Europeans yes. yeah uh, but uh, but I, I'm not throwing anything out. I'm just saying it was a really <coughs> a distressing what, situation so, so where, for everyone. That was before Brexit. We slept yeah. in the street for four we, days. Yeah, I was, was going to say, so where did you stay? Where but did you no, sleep? No, you sleep in the pavement, literally. You and sleep how, on how the cold? street and cold? you eat nothing. No, but it was raining. No, it's, it's the beginning of the monsoon. You have nothing to eat because all the people shut the, the, oh, um, the shops down because they want to keep what they have for their families because they know that the government will never yeah, move. Yeah. 
yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. or in a long time. So but you I have nothing to buy. We had no money anyway, and it's just you eat nothing. And you could you get Coca-Cola. That yeah. was about it. And no water, but Coca-Cola. One yeah. omelette a day we managed to scrape together. And actually, the guest house where we'd stayed uh, was super friendly. And of course, the, their facade was cracked. You couldn't go back in the building. But what they did was they... They took some of the mattresses out of the rooms, put them in the street in front of the guest house, and we just slept there. Really? Really? So on yes. the street? On a yes. No, but uh, um, exactly. It was, uh, they opened the courtyard. In front of the hotel, there was a courtyard who was belonging to a family. So it was sort of a U-shaped low building with an extended family living there and a little shrine in the middle. And this family opened the, the courtyard for the guests of the hotels in France. So we spent three days um, lying on the floor of this family courtyard and the all, mm. all nationalities, people from everywhere. And suddenly uh, after the second day, um, a Korean guy went in and uh, it's somebody we met 15 days before in the mountain and it's mm -hmm. like you and we just have a play of cards with him uh, 15 days before and I saw him and I was like oh wow you are alive you know so you had all these amazing moments with uh, we befriends three Pakistani girl who were there on holidays and um, they were really helping us because uh, they were speaking Hindi, Urdu, so they were no, able so to they communicate could, with the local you, population yeah. Yeah. and they totally helped us uh, get some food and stuff and they oh. were 22 years old, stuck in Kathmandu, three Pakistani girls and they were totally relaxed and they said, oh, you know, when you're from Pakistan, uh, you know, you can die tomorrow so you just get by with Fuck it, right. you know, yeah, so yeah. it was super... And we were also, there were some Japanese there in the courtyard, because uh, Japanese have a strong link with Nepal, they like the mountain and give a lot of money to the country. And uh, each time there was, yeah, because the problem was, okay, getting food, getting sleep, so that was not possible, but also uh, surviving the aftershocks. I mean, in three days after, mm. we had 80 aftershocks every 20 minutes, you have the, the ground, yeah. which shakes against almost at the same uh, Strength. So and uh, so each time it happened. So it's the middle of the night. You have a super strong wind. Winds. You have rain and you have an aftershock. Anything. And all the Japanese stand and um, embrace the trees because the trees are the last to go down in an earthquake. And Japanese people know this. You mm. know. So you had all this exchange of in survival. You have uh, it was like a little planet, a little world in the courtyard of this Nepali family. What nothing. And but each morning, the mother of the family, 6 a.m., she come in the courtyard, she rings the bell, she pray to the gods in the middle of the shrine, and she serves tea to everyone. There mm. was uh, 70 people in the courtyard. So it was also a, an incredible face of Asia, you know, and mm. it's like you are so touched by these people. Um, but I think it's important to say that really, uh, although it was psychologically distressing, of course, um, and at times it was like in a Hollywood movie because the, the streets were going like, they were like waves. The tarmac was going up and down, bouncing up and down. Yeah, the airport was but closed for civilian planes, so we didn't know when but we, we could knew, get out. But we knew that we would eventually go, get out and, and yeah. the real humbling aspect of this whole experience was that, you know, we knew that after four or five days we'd get out and the Nepalis would have to stay. All of those people would have to right. stay. And the amazing thing really was that in the aftermath of the biggest natural disaster they've had since the 1930s. 
There was no violence. There was no looting. Uh, the shops just closed. They put down their shutters, but there was nobody who tried to break into any shops. The solidarity um, between the people. The people oh. were a bit spaced out. Um, it was noticeable that the government did nothing. There was no military, no police, no ambulances, nothing. There was nothing in the in the hours after, in the after, immediate aftermath. There was on Durba Square, the UNESCO World Heritage Site, um, like the main tourist center of of Kathmandu, where the big temples had had collapsed. And we were interviewing a an Australian hippie who was saying that the two free policemen who did turn up told him to stop digging for local people and told him this is this is a problem for Nepalis and and foreigners should not stop digging should stop digging and get out of the square but there were no Nepalis digging there was no diggers there was no machines there was no authorities the 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 government was in its response at least in the in the first three or four days when we were still there was 100% useless people they did they did nothing for their people people were sitting alone in the night in courtyards making fires nothing. yeah sitting and nobody could go back into their buildings of course everybody slept outside because mm. people were too scared yeah. that the aftershocks would, would collapse further buildings yeah. so everybody just gathered in the big squares but there was no no government help that we could see whatsoever so yeah, you wanted to make a point to go back to yeah, see so the people and we've just been back in a month ago we went back for the first time and it after in the in the aftermath of the quake we came back to Thailand and uh then went down to Kopangan for a while to stay at a friend's house and you know neither of us really slept we we slept with our eyes open for two three months afterwards so it took a, it took a while to get it out of the system and i thought one of the things i thought was really weird at the beginning in Thailand coming back here was that the ground didn't move it was it seemed really mm. solid and that uh, that was a really weird feeling it's, it's, it's like when you go to a theme park you know on roller coasters yes, all yes, day yes, and then exactly you lie in your like bed that. at night yes. and the fucking beds move it's like that yeah. yeah so it took us a while to to get over that and then it and then we were in india last year and and we had i had an opportunity to to write a story uh, for the mekong review which is a uh, an an asian based literary journal um to to go back after three years and and look what the Nepalis had done with their country three years after the quake, but also kind of look at myself and my Nepali friends um how we had coped with mostly them of course because I'd left but for me also it was and for law as as well it was a, a thing for us to go back because it could always happen again of course and so there's this you know, there was always this fear at the back of my mind when I was going to sleep at night on this last trip last month uh, that there'd be another quake, and I never yeah, totally like relaxed. You've got some of that. Maybe of. yes, but I also felt that it wasn't so bad that I wouldn't go back. And we we talked about this. We were sitting we in we Did were sitting in Calcutta debating: should we go back? And Law thought for a second: maybe I go back to Bangkok and you go by yourself because you have the story. But then we we both went, and and I think. As it was a cathartic kind of thing to do, we needed to close the chapters. Yes, we needed to close the. Did chapter. you go back to that same uh, courtyard and guest house and no. see the same no, people? No, we went to the. Hotel. We went to the street, yeah, but yeah, I didn't go back in. Okay. Uh, and in any case, I mean, Kathmandu is now full of Chinese people, so that entire street where that <laughs> courthouse was is completely changed. It's just it's uh, Chinese restaurants, gambling joints. Uh, and yeah, guest houses. The first thing we did the first night, we went back to the hotel, and okay, the hotel was still there, but otherwise it was uh, the whole area gambling has Chinese games wow. that were not there before, and it was completely different. Mm. So, in a way, it was good also in the sense of 
okay, this is something else. You don't, uh, you yeah. are not obsessed by t- uh, similar things, you know. It's, it's, like, it, it's good it's that it's changed, and yeah. it's and Kathmandu changed so much. And we were in another part of Nepal also that um, didn't went before too. So it was a a discovery for both of us. It was nice. We we hitchhiked to the. Tibetan Chinese border on the north in Long Tong Valley. You, you, so that was you, really interesting. You hitchhiked from Thailand. No, <laughs> no, no. We Kathmandu. are in Kathmandu. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's still quite no, no. a distance from yeah. Kathmandu. I remember I, I was thinking oh, about right. doing but it. But the problem, the roads are still so bad. They we wanted yeah. to look at uh, okay, uh, what has been done since? Uh, how is the country copying? Mm. How is it evolving? And we chose to focus on the north of the country in the Long Tong Valley, which mm. was one of the most badly hit part of the mm. um, of the country. It was horrific. It's a whole village disappeared into 60 meters of rocks. It was really horrible there. And so we went there and said, okay, what's hap- what happened to these people, you know, who have only one word to, to move on, no work, nothing. And the answer is uh, just that the, um, the, the Chinese government, army, businesses, dam companies have moved on to... Um, yeah, to put infrastructure in the area, so the whole north of Nepal is uh, is pretty much uh, Chinese-backed infrastructure, but it's still slow because it's it's one of the most difficult uh, countries in the world in terms of geography to build anything. It's the, the highest mountain of the yeah, world, yeah, you yeah, know. What do easy, you do yeah. there? So. So people are struggling in the in the transition period because for the moment, for most of these people, for, for Tom's friends, Nepali friends uh, that he has for 20 years, all these guys, 40, 50 years old, who have 12 people at home to feed in a little house that got knocked down by the earthquake. So they are really in a difficult situation, $300 per year, and even this is gone because the tourists don't come anymore. So the only way is to go to Tibet and China on a construction site and and make ten ten bucks a day and that's no no they make know? a bit more and they make twice as much they make twice as much there than they do in Nepal that, which is why many many Nepalis go to Tibet to work in construction and at the same time that's the only thing they can do for the moment to really feed the family so that's what we saw we spent uh, Diwali the light Hindu festival Hindu festival of lights with the um, with a Nepali family the guide uh, and um, and yeah the guy was saying there is Tourists don't come. The markets are not there. Governments mm. don't give money to rebuild the house. The only way is to go and work in China. Yeah? So that was... Uh, yeah, that's convenient, isn't it? <laughs> well, and the funny thing was that the truck driver we hitched the ride with. So the road from Kathmandu to the Chinese border is 100 plus kilometers. And it takes 14 hours to get there. So you can imagine how shit oh the road is. God. It's just an absolute sea of potholes. Right? And they take these big, Andy, big Andy. trucks up empty and then they come back with Chinese plastic trash back into, mm. Nepal, in, back into Nepal. And uh, yeah, these, the driver we hitched with, he was 29 years old. He was making a ton of money because the job is really dangerous, driving these huge articulated lo- uh, lorries uh, on these terrible roads. And he was um, taking people like us or Nepali who don't to make have extra car. cash. And what, yeah. Was it comfortable? What, like, no. Was it like wooden? Was it like? Did you have comfortable seats or was it? 
Well, we just sat behind the driver on like no. they they sleep in their cabins, no? These so guys. Like so there's this kind of bench at the background. Yeah. yeah. And they yeah, stuck yeah, as yeah. many people as they can on the way. So, so at it wasn't one point, just you? no, at one point there was there's eight of us. There was an army guy. There was and another everyone's guy. And everyone's chain smoking. So <laughs> it <laughs> was just hell. yeah. But but the the amazing thing is that um, okay it it. We'll see what happens in the next 10 years or so and how much investment the Chinese will really make. But the plan that they have is to build a train from Lhasa in Tibet to Kathmandu. And this would be the greatest engineering marvel in the world. This will go across this Tibetan... Tunnel bridges. 90% will be tunnels and bridges on the Nepali side. So so, uh, they reckon... engineering. They reckon they're going to do it by 2027, but I'm not holding my breath. There's lots of people who say what, it's not possible. That would be a great story to follow the progress of that and seeing the trials and tribulations, people who die. And, and people, yeah, lots of people will perish doing that kind of work not, because yeah. they, there's people who have terrible accidents when they build these big hydro hydropower yeah, projects. Safety is not exactly paramount is it, in these yeah, parts no, of the world. Just before Kathmandu, we were in India for two months and we more or less did the Himalayans from India to Nepal. So we were cool. in Himachal Pradesh, the north state of mm. India, with uh, the Himalayas are also there. And there we saw a lot of um, workers who were um, hired by the Indian army or the Indian companies who were supposed to build and repair the roads. And uh, so this is an in- yeah this is an amazing sight. You have uh, whole families who come from one to two thousand miles away from other mm. states to walk in a mountain on the edge of a cliff. I mean, you have to see the picture. It's amazing. It's it's a cliff and you have a little path between the mountain and the cliff. Yeah. And people live in oh the God. in the curve of the mountain be, behind plastic sheets with children, babies, whole families. Like that close to the road. And that close to, <sighs> yeah, one meter from the edge and it's one kilometer down. It's... Himalayas mountain and it's uh, and you have thousands of these workers who are there to cut uh, to really um, bro- break rocks to repair mm. the roads and it's oh, I, I found it interesting that I don't know it's every five to, miles to look at how Asia is built you know and e- how the societies arrange with each other and this this migration of workers and mm. that was one of I the most uh, insane. Um, views what it takes in these countries to survive uh, it's really humbling yeah to travel to these corners of the world for sure i remember traveling on those mountain roads going up okay stop it hey welcome back so where were we? We were where were we in the universe? We were in Kathmandu, right? Kathmandu, that's right. And uh, yeah, I wanted to touch on something we discussed before we uh, before we got on air about a certain serial killer, the bikini killer, the bikini killer. Yeah, man. Right. So uh, <laughs> I was in Kathmandu in two thousand three on assignment with a, a Canadian photographer called Steve Sandford, and uh, we had an we had an assignment. For the Far Eastern Economic Review, I think, um, to uh, go and meet the Maoists during the Civil War. So we did. 
And we spent a week running around with the Maoists in the Annapurna region trying to dodge the Nepali army. And uh, that in itself was an amazing experience. Then we got back to Kathmandu and uh, the story had fallen through. So we were sitting in Kathmandu in Christmas 2003 thinking, what the hell are we going to do? How are we going to make the money back? So we did a bunch of stories. And then my fixer, uh, a, guy, a guy called Gunaraj Luitel, who is now a, a well-known Nepali journalist, uh, he was helping us at the time. He said, oh, uh, Charles Obraj is in prison in Kathmandu at the moment. And uh, and I knew who Charles Obraj was because I traveled in India many years before that. So Charles Obraj was a, the son of a, a Vietnamese woman and a, an Indian textile merchant who was born in Saigon during the French colonial occupation. Okay. And... Um, his mother subsequently divorced the uh, Ital uh, Indian textile merchant, married a French guy, and took little Charles to France with her. But in France, uh, Charles got into trouble and ended up in Borstals and, and young people's prisons and eventually ran away and went back to Saigon to look for his dad. And when he got back to Saigon, when he was 16 or something, he made it all the way back there in the uh, early 70s, I think. Um, his dad didn't want to know him. So he was adrift in the streets of uh, Saigon and he stayed in Asia and uh, got into gemstone dealing and uh, then got into gemstone hustling and cheated mm. people out of gemstones. And uh, through whatever circumstances, at some point through bad luck or whatever, ended up killing one of the people uh, that he was um, doing business with and probably realized that uh, he had a taste for it killing wasn't oh, everything yeah, it was yeah, cracked yeah. up to be like escalation you know like gemstone selling to gemstone stealing to fucking murder hustling yeah, selling yeah, hustling yeah, yeah, yeah. accidental it's like an escalation murder. isn't it Aunt? yeah so over the next decade or so he popped up in different countries in southeast asia including in thailand and in india and nepal and um he acted, he operated a little bit like Charles Manson in that he was surrounded by a bunch of women who kind of followed him around. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a sex thing. He wasn't interested in, in sexual exploitation or anything. He was really into just uh, scamming people and killing them. And um, he became very famous in Thailand because he was here um, staying near the Malaysia Hotel and uh, he poisoned a bunch of people there and then... Um, got one of his girls to pretend to be a nurse and tell those people that um, he would take them somewhere to make them feel better and then he took them to an apartment and poisoned them even more mm. and they slowly faded away and eventually died and in the meantime he was using their passports and spending their money and th okay. those were Dutch people but in at the same time or around that time he also um, killed a bunch of girls and buried them in shallow graves near Pattaya, which is why he was called the Bikini Killer here. Mm -hmm. But he escaped from Thai police custody mm -hmm. and disappeared and then reappeared in Nepal and India. And eventually in India, he tried to uh, poison a group of uh, French students, I think. And um, he miscalculated the poison. So um, they wrestled him to the ground and the police oh. got him. And... Um, and the Indians locked him up, but they couldn't quite do him for murder. They did him for manslaughter or something. And after eight years, he was he was due to be released from Tihar Jail in Delhi. So the night before his release, 
he um, he poisoned the guards and escaped because he knew <laughs> that if he was released, he would be extradited Excellent. to Thailand. Yeah. And the Thai cops were so pissed off with him because he'd escaped the last time round that for sure he would have had the death penalty here. So he had himself caught in Goa with a gun and rearrested. And he did another 10 years in jail in order to avoid the extradition to Thailand. And only when that court case in Thailand had lapsed did he have did he get released. And then he went back to France for a while and was a sort of celebrity of sorts. I mean, very creepy celebrity. There was talks yeah, of a movie. Yeah, serial killers. They do. And then he resurfaced in Kathmandu and had himself photographed in the casino in the Yak and Yeti, the, the place I mentioned earlier. And uh, once he was in the newspapers, the local police nabbed him. And then um, it went to court. And just prior before it went to court, our friend Gunaraj gave us the contact and so we went to the jail me and the Canadian photographer Steve and uh, yeah we met him twice the first time for 15 minutes to sound each other out to see if he really wanted to be interviewed and then we went back and I talked to him for an hour and a half and it was an in incredible experience we were in, the, in this in this visitor's room in, in, in the jail in Kathmandu which was really like a jail like in, like in a spaghetti western you know with a dirty old wall and watchtowers with guys and guns and and this big, big old gate with metal bars. And, and in this room, it was a long, narrow room, and we had to sit against the back wall on a low bench, and there was a wall between us and the prisoners. There was lots and lots of families there, all shouting at the prisoners who were behind this wall and behind some chicken wire. And they let Mr. Sobraj in, into this room. So we were on the other side of the fence, and um, he was shackled, ha hands and feet, and he had four policemen with him. And on our side, there was two policemen. I wasn't allowed to take notes. I wasn't allowed to record anything. We weren't allowed to take pictures. And these six cops that were hovering around us all the time were, were, were trying to listen in on the conversation, of course, because this was before he went to court. So they were trying to look for stuff where he, mm. for him to in, uh, incriminate himself. Right. And the amazing thing with this man, he, okay, People say he was an amazing genius because he got away with it for so long. But at the end of the day, that man spent 30-odd years or 40 years of his life in prison. So I don't know how clever that is. I wouldn't want to do that. Um, but he he freely quoted from the two biographies that have been written about him. One is by uh, an Australian uh, journalist called Richard Neville, and a really incredible book. He's Incidentally, Richard Neville was the guy who started Oz magazine in the UK, which... Um, is famous for its ob obscenity court case in the 1960s. Well, Richard interviewed uh, Charles Abraj in the late 70s in India and wrote an incredible book. And he quoted from this book all the time. And in that book, he admitted some of the murders. But he didn't admit any of the murders, and certainly not the Nepali murders, directly to us. He was just keep, kept snaking around them. And all the time, he was trying to turn the... the uh, turned the interview around and asked me personal questions mm. and uh, I wasn't going to give him anything personal you know be and he was I don't know you know we have so many preconceived images of serial killers through the media and through movies and we've mm. all seen Silence of the Lambs and all that and <clears throat> funnily enough I hadn't seen Silence of the Lambs for many years when I met him and after the interview I rewatched it and I thought god this is really flat boring stuff compared to the guy that I've just met really? And and the amazing thing with Sobraj was that, look, he's he's half Vietnamese and half Indian by birth, and he's French by passport. And when you talk to this guy, he could have been anything. He could have been 
a, Viet, a Vietnamese street Camille guy, Leon. a French professor, yeah. or an Indian textile merchant. Of many faces. He was really, yeah. truly a man of many faces. He could, he, I mean, he couldn't change his face, but he, he put on these different airs depending on what he thought I would expect from him. Mm. So there was this constant sort of game going on between us. Like he was trying to suck personal information out of me. I was trying to get him to talk about his murders, which he didn't want to talk about for obvious reasons. And so this cat and mouse game went on for about an hour and a half. And then, and then the, the prison guards kicked us out. So, um, how how did he, what did he poison Pete? What was his like chosen thing to poison? Did you know? I don't know, but he, oh. he used something that was really slow working, so it wouldn't kill people straight away. He would just yeah. basically paralyze them and then starve them to death. Yeah. And then what he would usually do is he would burn their bodies, but he would put a plastic bag over their heads so that the head wouldn't burn so that they would be easily identifiable. Right. And um, he, the, the two murders for which he eventually got done in Kathmandu was two young women he met in Freak Street, the, uh, the, the hippie quarter I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier in Kathmandu. He just picked up these lonely backpacking girls who had maybe had drug problems or self-confidence problems or whatever, and he would charm them, and then he would eventually kill them. And so so what, what, is there an estimated body count of this dude? There's 12, 12 guaranteed murders, 12. but there might well be more. And the really interesting thing was, now he's almost forgotten, but in the 70s, there was these two best-selling books about him. And, and in, I remember in the early 90s, when I used to travel in India, people used to tell me that when, when Indian parents, when they told their children to go to bed, and the children were naughty... The parents used to tell them, if you don't go to bed now, Charles O'Braj will come and eat you. He's the boogeyman. It's so, exactly the same with Siui. I yeah. mean, yeah. I mean, we, we used to say to our kids, you know, if you don't, if you don't go to sleep now, Siui will come. <laughs> it's a very popular... A real-life bogeyman. A real-life bogeyman. And oh, he seems like really it. manipulative, pre-meditated uh, campaigns of hate and, and murder. And we were looking at two cases yesterday, and the, the, the guy, the cabin in the woods in Wisconsin, and yeah. the, uh, the horrific case in Austria as well, with the guy Fritzl. Who, Fritzl, who kept mm. his family in the basement. And it make, does you lit up when we said Joseph yeah. Fritzl. Yeah. Well, well, it, you know just, it makes you wonder <laughs> of about Of course, we know about it, but also this, the, the, the name Fritzl, you know, it's forever and general. ever we will now associate that name right, with yeah. that it's story, like you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a bit, yeah. It does make you wonder about original sin, the concept yeah. that people are just kind of born bad and have this campaign to. It's more or less where we come from, you know, this German speaking. Yeah center of Europe and it's yeah this kind of story sticks yeah it's <laughs> yeah I felt with Sobraj I mean do you think he was mentally ill he had a bad childhood could you explain his behavior it just seems like he was totally well I, th I think bent on destroying life I think that all of us have the capacity to let go of everything and most of us don't because we're conditioned because we know what's wrong or right, or for whatever other reasons, we're too scared to really live out. It's the loneliness who? also. I think if you are with somebody all the time and have some emotional support of some sort from anywhere, you're going to... Um, 
Mm. Consequence. You're gonna yeah. go over it, you know. But the, the loneliness can really make you mad. We see this with a lot of uh, of of population who are, who are forced to loneliness, like homeless person or prisoners. Or you have a, a refugees, or you have an incredible. Mm. Uh, it can really switch and to mental disease, yeah. uh, and in another environment they wouldn't have, you know. So it's also the super violent ev- environment that trigger something in in people who have um, inner anger already you know the resentment the inner mm. anger which people um you know kind of medicate sometimes with alcohol or drugs or with uh, risk, risky behavior um and some people just go further than that and some people think, go a lot further than you that. know we and all get up in the morning and and are aggravated by something or whatever but very few people will act on their darkest impulses and and then turn that into a method and then turn it into a Ooh, lifestyle and yeah. and then turn it into a kind of mythology because the guy was self mythologizing for sure mm. he was very very proud of who he was and just uh, a little bit of trivia there thrown in um he had a lawyer through initially i communicated with him through the lawyer a lady and after the interview some years later he married the daughter of the lawyer really? so she became a mini celebrity I can't remember her name. <laughs> and she then went on the Indian version of Big Brother as a candidate, purely mm. as the wife of Charles Abraj. Holy shit. So y- you see how that then trickles down into popular cereal. culture. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's amazing when you think that this woman was on this TV show only on the strength to yeah. of the fact that she was married to a monster. But it goes back to Jack the Ripper. I think he was the main, the first media yeah. uh, sensation because the printing press in London at that time yeah, had man. just been able to print so many copies of a newspaper. So, And I don't think there was any before him that had like this celebrity kind of... Uh, nostalgic I don't know yeah. following I'm not really up on my serial killer history but, uh. but I'll tell you one thing when I left the prison after that after that interview I've and I stepped outside and I had this really intense feeling that okay I'm going back to my daily normal life now mm. and this creep is gonna stay in there for years and years and years and years Freaking to come but he won't and be it doesn't sound like he would be he will be um, rehabilitated really uh, no, he just got another fifteen-year sentence in two thousand fourteen, I think, or sixteen, and and he's he's never going to come out. He's seventy-two years old now, so good riddance. We don't want him, do we? <laughs> but I mean, some people do become. Funnily know. enough, in yeah. front in front yeah. of the jail, there was a bunch of Charles Abraj groupies, some of them from America, um, who travel all the way to Kathmandu just to meet a serial killer. And I was interviewing one of those guys, and I said. So uh, if Charles Abraj got out of prison tomorrow, would you go for dinner with him? And he said, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd, I'd bring him a dinner. Why not? You know? And I said, well, he might try and kill you. Yeah. And, and the guy said, well, you know. You want to swap the plates around, wouldn't you? <laughs> 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 he, he said asking Charles Abraj why he kills, that would be like asking why the sky is blue. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Why a bird flies. So, yeah. Exactly. So I think some of these um, serial killer groupies had almost the same, had I think different problems, die. but they also had serious, serious problems. Dark tourism again. Yeah. Dark tourism yeah, again, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I think these people don't give a live or die anyway. I think they're probably quite depressed and... They, you've got to be in a dark place, haven't yeah, you, for, they, that, they, for they, that to be your hero. They represent this nihilism, you know, and it, mm. ha- it appeals to, uh, mm. to a lot yeah. of people. And, uh, and for women, I guess it's also this... 
emotional, sexual thing that goes on if it's somebody special, you know? Because mm. you he don't was have a good looking power. guy. It's power, isn't it? Like it's it, the what, power, what? it's the determination, yeah. it's the and it, you yeah, yeah, we can be cynical here, but for a lot of women they don't meet that many guys like this, you yeah. know? It's like it's, it's like being in, in, in front of a prime you know, a president or something like that. It's the but same with the yeah. somebody killer. special for the wrong or white thing, but oh, it's somebody yeah. special so Yeah, but, that um, triggers this insane groupy thing. right now, uh, Tom, you're speaking of people in prison, right? You were telling me before that you've got a dude in prison at the moment that you're kind of employing, right? That you're... Can we talk about this on the podcast? Is that okay? Yeah, we can talk about this. So I I personally think that uh, Charles Abraj should stay in prison un- yeah. until he expires because I think if he was young enough and he got out, he would kill again. Um, I and I think that... Uh, there's absolutely no one on this planet who wants this guy to leave the, the jail. You know, there's just no interest. He has proved, and he's been convicted again and again, that uh, he should not be part of larger society. Mm-hmm. But I think the way uh, we sentence people, both here in Asia and in the West, is highly problematic. So in this context, um, I, I co-own a, a publishing house called Crime Wave Press. It's... Uh, Asia's only English language crime fiction imprint. We've right. published 32 books to date. Um, we've got a whole bunch of authors. And a few years ago, I, I got an email from somebody who said they were a literary agent and they had an author called Roy Harper who was in a maximum security prison in uh, Mississippi and he'd written a couple of books, whether we were interested. So I read the books, they were very good, and I published them. And then the agent of this guy, Roy Harper, he turned out to be another prisoner. He wasn't a real agent. He was just (laughs) his mate. And he was also a writer. But at the time, I was reading his stuff and I wasn't convinced and we just published a book by a prisoner so I didn't think I wanted to publish another one. But we stayed in touch and um, we had an intern scheme for a while where we would have people coming over from the US or from the UK and intern with us here in Bangkok. And um, we had... uh, yeah, one of our interns left, and then another one. Yeah, that was it. We had somebody else coming, and they cancelled at the very last minute. So we thought, oh, shit, you know. So um, we wanted to fill that gap, but if somebody comes from all the way from Europe or from America, it takes a while to set up, and there was like a three-month gap. So I went back to the alleged agent, um, whose name is Chris Roy, and uh, who is also in a supermax in Mississippi, and I said, why don't you intern with us? And he said, yeah, sure. So he did. and uh, come to Bangkok. <laughs> and I taught him uh, yeah we taught him how to use social media we um, he was already quite well read so we taught him how to edit a little bit and how to sift through the submissions pile how to set up interviews and podcasts and mm. and radio shows for our authors and after the three months were done he did really well he said um, look I'm sitting in a three by three meter cell for the next 30 years I'm not going to get out of here. The only lifeline that stops me from going totally fucking insane is this phone that I bought of the guards. And a burner? No, a Galaxy. Oh, yeah, but yeah. I mean like a burner, like a throwaway well, kind of... No, 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 uh, no, 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 no. Stubs, they, they, have they have on Amazon. They have oh, really? Good, yeah, he has a good smartphone oh, and he has a... 
So, so all, all this stuff that he does on social media and all that is that legal then, or does he no. do it on the on the sort of slide? Yes. Okay, right. And every now and then he gets busted by the prison authorities to take his phone, and the next day they sell him another one. Get a new one. Right. Fuck, you know. Because the system is totally corrupt. Mm. And the real tragedy of this is, okay, Chris killed a Vietnamese drug dealer when he was 17. He was a drug dealer himself at the time. He was selling crystal meth. He had problems with a supplier. They had an argument. He killed the guy. He had a public defender. Uh, He is white and grew up in a trailer in, in Arizona and Mississippi he had no money, he had no education and they just threw him away basically and they said okay you're not eligible for parole until you're 65 he went to prison when he was 18 Yeah, so that is a long long time and this was um, during the Clinton years and later retroactively the prisoners who were born a few years before him and a few years after him had their sentences reduced because this was really, really excessive sentencing. If you commit a murder at that age in Germany or in the UK or in Ireland or France or wherever, you're going to do 20 years max and then they're going to let you go. And and Chris is going to sit there till he's 65. So I felt that you know, life's not fair and I, I, I truly disagree with this kind of Old Testament justice system they have in the US where they just throw people away mostly black people actually African Americans Chris happens to be white but um, and in his jail 85% of the population is African American and only 15% are white and uh, yeah he tried to escape twice he he did escape twice and got caught both times again because once he was out he didn't really have a plan of what to do and so that's his sentence going up and up. It's, of course, it's not yes. going down, is it? Yes. It that way, yeah. And and in the prison itself, um, these men are all kept in cages twenty four hours a day. They they have like an hour or two of exercise in another cage outside, but most of the time they're inside. There's massive problems with mental issues. There's a massive suicide rate. There's a massive viol- There's massive violence in there. Gang violence between African American mm. gangs, gangs, Latino right. gangs. Then the um, these Aryan Brotherhood people are very powerful in these prisons. The the far right Nazi types. Um, of course, there's sexual assaults. Um, so every if you time, John, a gang you fucked. Are you basically you got no protection? Well, Chris is not in a gang, mm. and he's not tattooed. So this brings me to the next point, which is also very interesting. So mm. he. When he leaves his cell, he usually takes a shank just to protect himself. And the most common way to assault someone in this prison is to shit in your hand, to walk out of the prison cell, and to go up to the guy you want to attack and just stuff the shit down his throat as hard as you can. So this is the kind of level on... It's it's really inhumane. It's not about there's no rehabilitation. There's no there's going no idea there. of rehabilitation. They're not allowed to work. Yeah. They're not they're not, not allowed, allowed to, to have study. hardly ever I- any any visitors. They're not allowed to study. They're just sitting in these cells like animals, going totally crazy. Mm. So, because prior to meeting me, because Chris had nothing to do, but he's a kind of a constructive guy, and he didn't want to end up another junkie in that place. So what he did was he took his transistor radio, because they are allowed to have transistor radios, and he took it apart, and he built a tattoo machine out of that transistor radio. So he used, uh, for the needle, he used a spring from a big lighter. Uh, for the ink, he, he burned paper into soot and mixed it with shampoo. 
Um, he used the motor from the transistor radio with a rubber band and attached somehow attached with another couple of bits of rubber the the needle from the uh, the spring from the cigarette lighter and then he started charging people in the prison to get tattooed. Mm. So they did this through the bars because they're all sitting in their cages. So one mm -hmm. prisoner would go out for an hour and then put his arm through his bar and he would tattoo him through the bar or the leg or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, so he became the prison tattooist and he tattooed thousands oh, uh -huh. of people. And then he had That's the opportunity great. to tattoo people on death row. Yeah. So he, the way they did that was that the death row prisoner would bribe the guards... And then they would take Chris out of his cell, take him to death row. He would tattoo the guy and then they t would take him back to his cell. Mm. So he became the death row tattooist of Parchman, Mississippi prison. Oh, and his work is cool his work is really good. I mean, it's not shop quality because he's using really, really yeah. shitty materials. Shit, yeah. But technically speaking, it's pretty good. And, and he... Uh, and he Yeah, did amazing tattoos on Hell's Angels and he mm. also tattoos people from the Aryan Brotherhood because he says, what choice do I have in here? You know, I, they pay me, I do it. I don't care what it is really. Yeah, and if he's, the, if he's the sort of prison tattooist, he's got a bit of protection there as well, hasn't he? Cause Sounds he, like a good name for a band, doesn't it? Death Row, the Death Row Tattooist. Yeah, yeah, Death Row Tattoo. Yeah, there's okay. an idea yeah, yeah, so anyway cool we, we, we interviewed Chris and, and we, we published a long story about this uh, for the French tattoo magazine that Law was mm. working for so um, he was really really pleased he sent me some pictures that he took on his phone of the various people he tattooed and mm. we had to change all the names of the guys on death row of course mm -hmm. but um, so that and, and it was also interesting to hear their version of events why they wanted to get tattooed just before they died and it was usually they had tattoos of their family members tattooed on themselves so their daughters or their mm. wives or mm -hmm. their uncles or whatever that's the kind of and loads of obscene monster stuff and, and yeah. sex and Foster whatever stuff. of course but <laughs> also loads of family members yeah, yeah, yeah. so just to wrap this up it's you know I've had encounters with quite a few people who are doing time in prison I think that um, as societies we should no matter what people have done, unless they're psychotic serial killers, we should engage with an element of forgiveness when mm. we judge other There's people. And I strongly believe that the state should not end the life of prisoners because there's always the possibility of a miscarriage of justice. We've had it many times in every country mm -hmm. under the sun. And I also think that you should not keep a man more than 20 years in a hole, no matter what he's done. I think everybody... Even when they've killed someone, when they were teenagers or whatever, everybody deserves some form of rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And if those people are not dangerous to society, then at some point in their lives, when they're adults or older, they should be released. And a guy like Chris, I don't know what he would do if he got out, when he gets out. But for sure, he could start working in a tattoo shop tomorrow. He, he, he would not have employment problems. He would not have problems seeking back into some kind of society because he has learned a real skill. And if you go into a tattoo shop and you say, dude, I used to be the death row tattooist in Mississippi, oh, I think they're going to give you a job. Some business, man. Yeah. So I, I am hoping that eventually he will get out and, mm. and, and have some sort of life. And in the meantime, um, I know it's it's morally sort of ambiguous the fact that that i s i support this man or that crime wave press give him work but 
hey, Dignity for Work, you know, he, he does fantastic work for us. He, he runs all our social media. He has a really good way of connecting with, with authors and with readers. And um, he has all day to do it, of course. And um, for him, it's a way out. He, he, he still writes crime fiction. He's in touch with many, many crime writers. And it gives him some sense of meaning. And it's, it's better that he sits in his cell writing crime fiction or reflecting on fiction mm. than the guy next door who all day just shits in his hand and throws the shit at the wall because that's the only Fuck, other thing yeah. you can do in there. Yeah. So I think the fact that in in his unit, I don't know exactly how many people there's in there, 30 or 40, he's the only guy who is in any way constructive, who's doing anything mm. positive and who's contributing to... You know, our cultural heritage, if you want to put it this way. Should be encouraged, I mean, to pursue a literary um, career in this fashion against the greatest odds, you know, and an artistic uh, career as well with the the tattoo work and with the literary work. And I I don't know, the way the the States is set up now, um, it's almost encouraged um, to to jowl people and keep them there. You know, it's privatized, it's... Yeah, they and, and just the, money. Just, uh, they make money just from cash, having people right? in jail. They make money from it on, on many levels, partly because, as Law says, because of these private contractors, but partly also because of all the, the clandestine shit that goes on in these prisons. Funnily enough, Roy Harper, our author, the other guy, he's now in a, cent- in a general population prison. He's no longer in the, uh, in the, um, in the high-risk uh, supermax. And in those prisons, there aren't any phones. The phones are only in the places where people are most isolated. I guess yeah. because the the guards can keep a lid on it somehow. Yeah. Because it's mm. them, they charge like $300 for a shitty galaxy, you know, so mm. they're raking it in, or $500. They're, they're raking it in on, on the back of these prisoners who have hardly any way of making any money in there anyway. Most of them have no way to make money. Chris, of course, he charges for the tattoos, so that's how he makes money. Mm. And the other big problem in, in these prisons is there's a phenomenal phenomenal amount of drugs in there. So right, if if yeah. you don't want to go completely mental in your little shoebox, the alternative is to completely bliss out and get into crystal meth or smack or whatever and then spend years and years and years in a kind of comatose days and waiting mm. to for the time to go away. And a lot of people, unfortunately, well, for, for lack of other... Um, of anything else to do, they, they, they slip into that. And again, none of this could happen without the help of the guards because how is the stuff going to go in there? It's, it doesn't come in with, with the visitors because there's hardly any visitors. These supermax prisoners don't get visitors. So it must be through the, the organization of the prison itself. That's how the stuff gets in there. Yeah. So you think how cruel this system, this American prison system is, where it's privatized. That means there's companies making money out of these people sitting in little tiny boxes. And at the same time, the employees of those very companies flog them anything they want. Enslave them even more. Through and the enslave them even more yeah, by yeah. forcing, kind of pushing them into making money illicitly yeah. in order to be able to pay for their consumer products, for their shopping. So, so yes, drugs are a big problem, and I, I think this is the perfect bridge to go to the last section of cannabis, our talk, yeah, which is uh, yeah. cannabis, which uh, has just been, medical cannabis has just so been legalized in Thailand. Thailand. Yeah, yeah um, nothing to do with drug trafficking and medical nothing cannabis. Nothing to do, nothing, no <laughs> connection. We're just making a, a really awkward bridge to the next part of the conversation. Yeah, it's a nice segue, a lovely segue. Yeah, and of course... So 
We were in Kathmandu where, you know, people even today, all the hippies still sit there completely stoned. Just smokes of weed this so weed, 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 weed is the subject of the 21st century. There's many states in the US where it's legal now and Canada, Canada has just made it legal. Um, there's finally more medical studies going on. And Europe is kind of, Europe and Asia are dragging their feet, even though this is a billion dollar business. Um, Not but, but in, in Europe now there's slowly, Portugal. slowly Portugal. changes coming. In Portugal and Spain it's decriminalized, but it's not legal. Portugal is, uh, you're not allowed to advertise for it. It's not in the shops. No, but you won't go to, to court for it. Uh, right. So but it's not legal the way it is in yeah, California or in Canada where you have billboards selling the stuff, you phone a number. shops everywhere. And exactly. Yeah. So in Europe, because the Europeans are a bit behind the Americans. The The main issue at the moment is medical cannabis. And there is some way of of legalizing that. And Law made a five-part TV series about medical cannabis for Arte. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. You did a documentary, right? Yeah, so that was my first personal project after I came out of journalist school. And um, I wanted to be a freelancer. And um, as I said before, I started my career as a local journalist in a 20,000 people city, but I still think that's the best way to get stories. So I, I was just simply covering a medieval festival in my city one fine Sunday morning where people were blowing fire um, out of the mouth with clothes of medieval people, you know, so that's our um, year uh, festival in the mm. city. And uh, I just, um, I, I end up talking to a guy who had a booth with everything made of hemp, products all made of hemp, so bags and teas and stuff. So I start talking to him and um, he gives me... Um, I'm a bit stressed, you know, it's in the morning, I have to work for 10 bucks a day, it's mm -hmm. like annoying. And he said, okay, let's uh, let's take um, a cannabis tea together. I said, okay. So we have this thing, but it's no THE, you know, it's this CBD uh, tea, CBD, yeah. and it's yeah. super nice. And then we start talking, this hippie guy. And he said, okay, let's go to the bar, have a drink. So 20,000 people, one city, three bars, you go to the rock bar, you have a beer, We have a beer, he tell me his love stories, he's a guy from my region and um, who was born with very serious um, neurological problems, mm -hmm. but uh, he was maybe 10, 15 years older than me and it's still the period where people were, um, were kind of cured were with electric shocks. So this oh, guy oh. at five, six years old had electric shocks on his head, you know, mm -hmm. and that was the way to sort this out. He got obviously completely traumatized and at 18 he left for Africa so in Senegal he became um, uh, organizer of a music festival and he went into the scene and discovered cannabis on a therapeutical level in these countries where people were using it in uh, in food in drinks in smoking for Hundreds, thousands of years, as we know mm -hmm. it everywhere in the world, in every continent, that people uh, are using this. And he, he totally s he, he starts consuming it on a therapeutic level and all his crises stopped, you know. So yeah. he was convinced and started being in the medical cannabis um, movement. So we talk about this and suddenly he said, oh, wow, uh, 
there was a guy passing by at the bar and he said, oh, I know this guy, uh, let's talk with him. So this guy was a um, French um, activist for medical cannabis who was living in my small town and uh, he was the guy who um, translated from English to French the first activist book about medical cannabis. And uh, we, we introduced each other and he said, oh, let's, let's have a look at my house, you know. So I, we, got, we go to his house and the guy has a, has a fucking laboratory in his kitchen with everything, <laughs> <laughs> cool. you know, like three streets from where I live, you know. And mm. I said, okay, that's cool. And uh, he said, yes. Yeah. So, um, so I met by coincidence the core of the French medical cannabis movement in a bar in my town, you know, just doing my local correspondent job. And from there... You sensed I, the story. For sure. Yeah. I sensed the story. Nobody cared about these guys. And it was all people uh, who had uh, serious stuff, you know. It was like HIV, sclerosis, AHHD, like very hard things that's from childhood. And they, most of them, it was... People from 35 to 60 years old, I would say, from a generation yeah. where this thing, for example, the HIV in, in France in the 80s, it was horrific, you know, people got enormous dose of stuff and they lose 40 kilos in three years yeah. and this sort of thing, you know, really yeah. the horror of the first treatments. And um, so I... Um, I did my journalist school, I became a freelance, and this guy came back to me and said we are organizing the first European conference mm -hmm. about medical cannabis in Strasbourg, so my town in the European Parliament. So we end up uh, one Saturday in the European Parliament, which is this huge building in Strasbourg where um, the M European MP meet once a week there. Mm -hmm once a month, sorry, a week during a month. And um, and you had uh, all these um, patients and researchers and doctors and lawyers from everywhere in Europe uh, in this parliament smoking joints at the cafeteria, but nobody was <laughs> there, you know, it was a Saturday, so no MP was there, it was just this... Cloud. Hippie Cloud guys, cloud, yeah. yeah, and uh, we we're all smoking dope in the cafeteria and talking about this, and um, and I was the only journalist there. I mean, it was amazing. It was the first European conference mm. about medical cannabis by activists, and there was nobody. I was alone there, so I talked to everybody, and I got a scoop, and I'm yeah. like, okay, let's um, uh, let's do a documentary. So I had no money and no support and nothing. So I just, with my friends, on my weekends, with my money, we self-finance a documentary about um, medical cannabis in Europe, in Israel, and in Canada. Um, and we, we cut this in three parts. So the first part was the patient. What is the experience of a HIV patient with cannabis or sclerosis or the 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 range of disease that could help. Mm. Uh, and after we went to the doctors, so researchers, for you have people you never heard about in the mainstream for 40 years, they mm -hmm. are working, uh, working on this. And uh, there is one guy who is 80 years old who discovered THC, you know, and uh, so this sort of people. 
in Israel, yeah, Raphael Mishulam discovered a THC, so we went to mm. meet him, and he's this 80 years old Israeli doctor. What, the guy that actually discovered THC? THC in oh, the 60s. Uh, he discovered wow. THC, and he said, when I was working on it, nobody was interested. And he said, uh, I will, uh, and most of these doctors, so the, sorry, the third part, just to finish, was the politician, because for me, the, the thing that... The medical cannabis will go somewhere if the patient, the doctors, and the politics work together. These yeah. three parts have to be together and talk yeah. about how you implement a law that is okay with the medical mm -hmm. uh, body and which is okay with how people use it. And uh, so we did uh, this in, uh, in like 10, 12 countries. Um, and um, it, it was really... Um, Amazing the numbers of, uh, I mean, in every country I went, you just drop the word and uh, you have thousands of people in Czech Republic, in, uh, in La Réunion, in France, in, mm. uh, in Germany, in Switzerland, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, in Israel, everywhere who are um, struggling. So they do this in the kitchen, they do this in the garden, they do this by the law. But you have thousands of people who are just fighting to be able to cure, not cure themselves. I will, I'm not a scientific and uh, I, I don't know about this, but I can say that the people I've met have got some sort of a life back when mm. good cannabis was made available yeah. well, to well, them. Well, I think that I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that human beings have have almost. I think there's been a relationship with cannabis for thousands of years with human no, beings. No, we I'm, know I'm that sure in the that, brain we yeah, have we neurotransmitters have yeah. that are totally receptive to, yeah. to cannabis. The problem mm. is that we are completely. Um, these people are completely dependent. Uh, on the black market or on their own production and uh, you mm. it's like everything i mean if you really take medical cannabis if there is debate there but if you really take medical cannabis as a um, therapeutical drug you need to research it and you need to mm. know for these people who have sclerosis with 40 years old with a woman what's the mm -hmm. dose what's the cbd what's the thd what's the thing she needs mm -hmm. and uh, for the moment uh, we have all these people who smoke joints of bad weed, yeah. and uh, it's it, it's still uh, it's still uh, helpful for them because I met people who are in Czech Republic with no money, who are in a wheelchair, a woman 40 years, she had sclerosis for 20 years, and she said smoking a joint every morning is the only way I will be able to go to the toilet, and wow. uh, I I mean this is a human thing. With, uh, with the normal medication, these people have cramps and uh, you have a lot of disease where you just cannot relieve mm -hmm. yourself, you know. It's the simple thing where you get up chemicals. in the morning and you yeah. go to the toilet and I think this should be possible for everybody and if this helps them... And it's so cheap. It's so cheap. It's it's one dollar a gram. Yeah. The production cost of good cannabis really? in the Netherlands, good with no shit in there, no pesticide, nothing. One dollar a gram. It costs nothing. So the, the <coughs> way, way, way I'm going at is that this whole investigation we made is that why cannabis is not developed. It, it helps so much people. Because it's natural. I was going to say, is, isn't it fucked up it that, that we allow all these chemicals, it these costs nothing. pharmaceutical companies yes. push all these shitty chemicals on us and there's this natural plant mm. that's, that's grown on Earth 
that that's co-evolved with human beings over thousands of years, and it's a natural plant, yeah. and, and we've we've made it illegal and we've demonised it. But and, as the law says, it's it, it's a weed. And so by we, definition, weeds grow really yes. easily, you know, and stopping the, them the, to grow. And the problem you have is that when you start to, uh, in a lot of uh, countries, uh, you have to be uh, also careful with mainstream media announcement because when you look at this, for example, Czech Republic, they said, okay, it's decriminalized, Can I, medical cannabis will be made available for some disease in Czech Republic. I look at this, I go to Czech Republic, I meet people who are waited every year of the garden. I said, okay, what's happening there? And they said, no, no, they just um, cut the judiciary legal ban and now they replace it by, uh, if you want to bring cannabis in the country, you have so much paperwork and so much standards and uh, the price will be so high because for the moment in Europe, the... um, pure medical cannabis with no shit in it, mm. which is really produced properly, is by two border in the countryside in Netherlands. It's people, who, I don't remember in English, but it's people who were um, uh, cultivating some sort of vegetables for some time mm. and they lost everything because of the market in Europe and uh, they said, okay. And at the same time, the Dutch government put an announcement in the newspaper saying that they were looking for some uh, farmers in Netherlands to take out the state order mm. of medical <coughs> cannabis so they apply and they won. So I went to see them and it's two brothers who never smoke a joint in their lives. It's two mm. 50, 60 years old farmers who are responsible for the whole clean medical wow. cannabis production in the Netherlands. And I went two to squares. see the guy and he <laughs> said, we don't want to have the monopoly. We would love to have... Um, to have competitors because the problem is that if Republic Czech, if Czech Republic put a legal, um, say, okay, now it's legal, but they don't follow up with production. So the only way is to import it from Netherlands and Netherlands is another money level, you know? Mm. So it's like, uh, who in Czech Republic will pay 15 bucks per gram from Holland, yeah? Mm. So you have this, uh, this thing where the government said, yeah, yeah, we do it, but it has absolutely to be followed by a national production. Otherwise, you are just mm. dependent on other countries who are just it's quick and wiser than you. expensive. So you just, yeah. uh, instead of the legal ban, you put the administrative and financial ban. So you just make it available for really rich people or for, for the um, really wise the administratively. Want, yeah. So... Um, it's interesting in Thailand they are talking about this and some Thai researchers were saying we have to be really careful for the uh, with the patent that the patent have to stay in mm-hmm. the public domain of Thailand mm-hmm. so Thai researcher can continue research it uh, in a in a public u- academic mm-hmm. way and uh, otherwise you will be com- it, it's the most under story you know you will be mm-hmm. completely dependent on other countries so you, you have to I mean I think cannabis had a lot of uh, potential with what I saw with people who have really heavy Too disease right, yeah. and it really makes their life just nicer as we all want to. It's not their fault if mm. they have HIV or stuff, you know. And so we should push for this. But at the same time, the the state should make sure that uh, this thing is uh, available at a decent price to everyone who needs it. 
and uh, the other risk is, yeah, the companies taking over. This is what the Thai government is actually worried yeah. about or what's being debated in Thailand at the moment is, is uh, I was reading yesterday... If it's available but too expensive, it's the same no, they're, problem. They're preparing 16 patents now for cannabis uh, solutions for medical cannabis but there is of course a real danger and there's been some interest from abroad already Expats of, coming in of and big ph- in pharma market, companies yeah. saying we'd like to patent cannabis for Thailand and then if the Thai government were to agree to this then um, it would preclude any rise of a local industry it would destroy yeah. that right you've from gotta, the start you've got to stop that it's got to be local farmers local produce man. well mm. what a what a fool. Well, I'm just looking at time. That's another 48 minutes. That's like two... We're, we're over two hours now. That's been... This has been great, man. I've really... Uh, the last two hours has flown by, man. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, James, been awesome, right? Yeah. It's been a good one, man, yeah? Yeah, thanks very much, Mr. Yeah. Tom. Yeah, thank so, you very much for... Uh for having us no, and no uh, worries man so where where can people get hold of you what 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 do you want to leave people with tom before you go where, where can people get hold of your shit where can get people read your stuff law yeah start mm, with law but i'm just if you find me on twitter like lore sigel i know it's difficult for english people gone spell yeah l a u r e so it's like Laura, but the french version you drop the a you put a e at the end you get Laura. l a u r e and sigel s i e g e l and you find me on twitter you have my links of my articles yeah tom yeah and for me uh you can find my books on Amazon or you can go to my website, tomvater, T-O-M-V-A-T-E-R.com and uh, you'll find me there and uh, read my new book, The Monsoon Ghost Image. It's a fantastic thriller set Something in Thailand. Something else about Thailand. The Monsoon Ghost Image. Yeah, check out The Monsoon Ghost Image, a really great film. Published by Crime Wave Press. Really good read. Crime and, Wave Press. Uh, read. And this week, it's uh, actually this week because I'm, I'm on this blog tour at the moment, so this week... The ebook edition is 99 cents. So go run and get it. Less expensive than a beer in Thailand. Less expensive than almost anything in Thailand. Ah, yeah, 30 baht, right? James, yeah. where can people get older, brother? The price of a beer in Cambodia. Funny yeah. enough. Exactly. A beer so now. thanks, Mickey, and thanks, James, for having us on the show. It's been oh, awesome. It's been great, guys. And uh, yeah, we've, we've thanks for a great it. evening. Thank you. No worries. James, Cheers, where son. can people get older, you, you son, quickly? You can find me stumbling outside in Sukhumvit Road somewhere or oh. on Twitter. James Newman. James BKK. Newman on Twitter. Okay, well, you, James Newman, BKK. BKK. You can get hold of uh, us at Strange Life This on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us at this strange life podcast at gmail.com. You can get hold of me at CryptoMickey at, on Twitter. Uh, and you, we're on the interweb at thisstrange.live. Strangers, uh, been lovely to talk to you. We'll see you again next week.
icons from the icons. Icons should be icons, shoot the icons from the icons. Icons should be icons, shoot the icons from the icons. Icons should be icons, shoot the icons from the icons. Icons should be icons, shoot the icons, fuck the icons. Icons should be icons, shoot the icons, fuck the icons.